0: need me if I start
1: people dipping left. And when I get nervous, I walk. And usually I speak too quickly. So if you don't understand anything just keep to yourself and pretend you did. i be very, very careful who I you mean, talk to you about
2: that because the person who wrote that is dangerous.
1: Welcome, listeners, <laughs> to another episode of the Nonprofit Podcast. We are... Uh, sitting north of salt lake city beautiful bozeman montana sitting with uh jack tackle uh who i don't know climbing legend i will say and um i don't think anyone would argue with that and we don't really want to you know we're both old guys and around the block. I'm much older than you are. It, I'll never be as old as you. That's right. I believe Don't you, forget that. You've told me <laughs> this a couple <laughs> of times. Um, but since there is a, uh, a lengthy history, uh, well, we'd, I guess we'll just time travel back to um, the beginning of um, our sort of relationship. But, j- but just in general... Um you've been climbing for 50 some years.
2: 49 last August. 49. Okay. Just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> and uh I noticed
1: that you still do it because I
2: I saw you in the indoor rock climbing gym this morning. Yes, we were <laughs> both subjecting ourselves to Hurting ourselves on plastic, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've, it,
1: it was really cool this morning for me. Cause I, I mean, like I've been walking without uh, uh, crutches, cane, or walking boot for about a month. And I've ridden my bike outside twice. And when Sam Elias, um, who's also appeared on the, uh, the podcast in the past um, in town visiting said hey do you want to go to the rock gym tomorrow and uh, I said fuck yeah I do <laughs> I want to see if this fused ankle works or yeah, if my shoulder did, works you did well I saw you <laughs> it, it was alright yeah. <laughs> like I said I was you know I was channeling a little Kim Schmitz because um, I remember sometime back would be mid 90s Seeing him come into the Teton Rock Gym, I used to, when I'd go and visit Brent's and in uh, Jackson, and, uh, you know, come in, I can't remember if he was walking with a couple of canes or not, but...
2: It might have been just depending
1: when it was, you know, because yeah. he got hurt in 83, so... Yeah. Yeah. But ankle fused, and, you know, kind of moved around on the wall just fine, and I... So when I was facing the prospect of having an ankle fused, uh, his example was one of the ones that um, gave me some hope for <laughs> being able to return to do some things.
2: Yeah. Well, you're you're doing just fine given all the recent medical <laughs> potential malpractice that you've been involved in. So. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You surprised me last year (laughs) with, um, you know, your visit with the medical system. Kind of bummed me out. First of all, when you told me where you and George were going, I had to look it up, and I was blown away by the images that I saw. Yeah, it's
2: beautiful. God, yeah. Keep
1: this area a secret, so we're not going to see where it was. And a friend of mine, Jim Martin, had been back in there uh, early, you know, probably in the 70s, and said, it's big. It's really, really extraordinary.
2: Yeah, it's beautiful alpine rock climbing. Actually, as I was talking to you earlier, my rope mate on Everest, Michael Graver had actually done a new route in that cirque because he was a California guy. Okay. Sometime in the late 70s so it's not it's not like nobody knew about it Yeah. it's just been it's a little shall we say not next to the car (laughs) (laughs) so it's a ways in (laughs) but
1: anyway I mean maybe we should we can uh, just touch on some of because you'd be like oh man you go climbing and it's healthy and it's good for you and you get fit and you make some red blood cells when you go to high altitude and you don't develop any negative relationships with substances afterwards or anything like that. (laughs) Unless Um,
2: unless you have a well-supplied medical kit, that can change things. Well, That can change things, yeah. Yeah, Especially if you happen to be
1: on a ski traverse of a (laughs) set of peaks in Pakistan. (laughs) 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 One of my favorite articles in the Alpine Journal of all time, I believe, was... God, who, uh, so Ned Gillette, Galen, Kim, and there was a fourth who I can't remember. Dan Essay. Okay. And there was some, uh, stimulants
2: had been acquired. There was a smorgasbord, (laughs) as I recall. I, I, do, wasn't I, I, do I wasn't believe, there. I do
1: believe that that yeah. was the word that was yeah. even used <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in uh, said article. But, um, yeah, a lot of terrain was covered. A lot of weight was lost uh, on the back of a certain South American plant designed yes. exactly for, you know, the drudgery of dragging a sled or carrying a heavy pack.
2: Or, yeah, Stutzman, the it? guy I did ISIS with, called it Peruvian marching powder. There we go! <laughs>
1: wow! Oh man, we do have some. There's some rich history here. Anyway, uh, this the idea of you know that climbing is being health, being healthy and that kind of thing. Well, you know sometimes you fall down. Sometimes things fall on you, um, and you have had your fair share of those experiences.
2: <laughs> and uh, I've had more than my share in some respects but I've been quite lucky because I'm still here so yeah
1: yeah. but anyway that was kind of uh, scare last year I was like man I thought maybe at a certain point you, you've paid enough into that account
2: I mean, that I you couldn't st- agree more Jesus <laughs> Christ I mean I was like really you know slip going across a flat stream on a piece of flat granite you Now, but shit happens you know it's part of being in the mountains yeah. yeah so so we met
1: i think we've determined it was 1986 in the offices of brenco which later became montreal yeah. and uh i th- i was you know pretty fresh climber and meeting you and danini uh, to legends to people that I looked up to when I started climbing, uh, certainly, and they had been importing Brixia boots for a little bit is that is that how it got started, or well um
2: no, when I first went to work for Jim as an associate sales rep, and he had already his existing relationship with Branco okay, the first boot that we distributed was Kessinger.
1: Oh, yeah. The, the blue and black plastic boots from Everest 70, made famous by Messner and Hopler. Mess- Messner's and boots, right? Yeah, But yeah. also
2: they had uh, black leather tele boots.
1: Yeah, they had the only double telemark boot at right, the time. Right. Yeah.
2: So that was the first footwear brand. Okay. That I remember. Um, and then the one sport came after that with Martial and his products from from Europe, um, which is actually why I was
1: there because I had um, developed a relationship in France with Martial, who was I don't I guess he was the worldwide distrib- French guy mm-hmm. worldwide distributor of this particular brand of boots that are made in Italy and had been working with them on some really kind of cool uh, you know, your standard sort of double boot with like an alveolite liner, but you could also just put their rock shoe in it as the liner. Which mm-hmm. I can tell you that hiking 15 miles in rock shoes, even if they are inside of the outer shell of a double boot, is ill advised. Bad idea, bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but you know, you get greedy and you don't want to carry extra weight, and so you
2: well, at the time, too, it was somewhat innovative and yeah, meant sort of a multi-use kind of tool yeah that was cool and then they also made these over boots that you put over your rock shoes so you could actually wear a pair of crampons
1: that was that was just it was like a, a, a just a fabric gaiter that zipped right. up and but it had a lugs you know vibrant lug full, sole on the bottom full yeah. outsole
2: on it and actually Danini and i used those on the cobra pillar climb no shit yeah we hauled them all the way up so we could put. So you could get off. So we could do the seven pitches of snow climbing at the top and get off the backside.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, so you're in, Alaska, in the Alaska range, albeit lower altitude, not Denali. No. But. Quite low. On the roof. So the top of uh, Dickie's 9,000, maybe?
2: The, the core of the pillar is on Beryl. Beryl. And Excuse it's me. only like 7,600 feet. Okay. so... But it's the size of Half Dome. Oh, yeah. But I'm just yeah.
1: thinking about the walk-off off the back. Like you go down to... Uh,
2: Went down to the mountain house. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Damn. In rock shoes with those over boots. Yeah. Over, over slip shoe slipper thing. I don't even remember what they were called. but I can't remember either. Yeah. I wish I could, but <laughs> they the were winter, red. The, the <laughs> winter boot was the Janu. Right. That was the gray and red one. Then the next one down, so there was a... It was a single boot. It was a single Um which I had at some point. <laughs> so the resin rose was Marci- was Marcial's rock shoe design. Right, that Catherine Destivelle
2: climbed in. Yeah, yeah. The Neve was the name of the boot that was the overboot. That was just the overboot. There yeah. we go. Nice. Yeah.
1: Um, Synapses started firing. again. <laughs> <it. laughs> So the resin rose was the first rock shoe that that came over. I don't think their their alpine boots really hit in the U.S., but that rock shoe
2: did it, did pretty darn well. Yeah. Well, Catherine helped that part of things. Yeah,
1: and yeah. Isabelle Patissier, yeah. and I mean, Martial had all the yeah. the the you know best. French climbers, certainly, at the um absolutely some of them at the time, um and then developed a relationship with so Scott franken was with e b at that time, and then he went to one sport, and I think the Frenesse was
2: developed in collaboration with him mm-hmm. if memory right. serves i think didn't to bolt or not to be have something to do with that uh, not not in terms of i mean i obviously j p. b trueau put that route right up, but I remember Scott climbed it. Climbed it in those. In those and, then, yeah. and then uh, put up Scarface right. also,
1: I yeah. think, wearing those. Yeah. That would have been 88, because I know because Randy and I pried the flake off. That You know, Scott said, well, we're going to have to modify this route because it's too easy. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a really good rest with this flake. And if you guys, I mean, you're ice climbers, just go up there and like break it off. <laughs> we just anyway, yep, so we met, and I had been given this, and i you know i've I don't know if you being a wheeler dealer
2: sales guy talked me out of this ice tool or <laughs> <laughs> I never had anybody describe me as a Wheeler dealer sales guy, but (laughs) until now, apparently. (laughs) Until now. (laughs) I mean, I am
1: thinking, like, uh, in that era, one of the lines that you sold was Helly Hansen, right?
2: Starting in 86, I was the Helly Hansen rep for six years, yeah. And they were
1: maybe not exactly at the forefront of... um, i don't know clothing development
2: no all they had was leafa underwear and then when elon came out with capoline it, they just got buried by <laughs> capoline
1: <laughs> they so, came they were they re they came back they kind of resurrected it as like an outerwear company had said yeah, you now, know actually a, a, now
2: they have you know a complete line of outerwear and clothing all over the world but at the time it was basically two products leafa polypropylene underwear yeah and their version of K-way price point coated nylon rainwear. There we go. Yeah, yeah. That was
1: that was it. And I was thinking, if you could, you
2: know, sell that
1: stuff, I didn't. I I realized that ninety percent was probably Leafa. Um, or more, or more. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I remember some of that outerwear. I'm like, man, if he can sell this, he must be a really good salesman. <laughs> <laughs> it helped to, to have better lines later. Put it that way. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. um, so I had been given uh, a carbon fiber shafted uh, super core minor ice tool um, by John Kino at Gravel in 1985, climbed the north face of the Iger with it, um, probably carried it on the walker spur, but didn't need it, uh, and then eventually, you know, found my way to a different, brand. I can't remember, you know, that whole history yeah my history with Crevel is somewhat complicated <laughs> um and uh the and i think i had started would you know sometime in eighty six i'd started climbing with Stubai tools there was i mean there was a period i had um these really um some it probably would have been later in eighty six when uh on the second uh Nipsey attempt with jeff Lowe, he they had they low alpine had finally made it like a carbon shafted big bird or something mm-hmm. um not a great material in you know probably a bit more fiberglass than carbon um it, in them and i didn't love those but because i was climbing with him and you know a lot some of what was being done um was to promote uh, uh lay talk and that company right. and uh so I, I started you know climbing with the, uh that's that summer after the spring trip to nipsey or um can nipsey where i had stu tools i started climbing with low alpine and um had some pretty nice titanium foot fangs i recall those were cool uh but i had no need of this gravel tool i thought i'd you know the talk gravy train pulled up, and I hopped on. And so I gave away this tool um, to you. See, which, that's why
2: I did it, not because I was a sales
1: I, guy. See, I, th- I think we've we've <laughs> you know, you talk long enough, you can <laughs> excavate the the truth, truth comes <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. now I'm just thinking of all the you know the photographs uh, of from that era. It's like how I can maybe navigate because my memory's not that great. Um, and so I handed that tool to you and later like and then so about 86 and then i'm gonna say that sometime maybe 2002 ish it um made its way back to me reappeared it reappeared shorter (laughs) and uh it had been used a lot i think you gave me a list of all the routes that you'd done with that tool yeah i did
2: quite a few i think yeah yeah because it was a, you know, it was a step forward in the technology as far as the shaft. I mean, the tools at that point, the picks and the angle of the droop and the architecture wasn't, you know, as sophisticated as it that came later. But, but at the time, the thing was the gravel picks rad. were actually the main attribute, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, the evolution yeah. pick. Oh, and th- that
1: came later. That's that's like. That's probably 90-ish, maybe 91. Yeah. Yeah. So that tool... <laughs> um, Where is that thing? So, John Free is the custodian uh-huh. of, all of the ice tool collection. Of the wall of shame that you had? In... Yeah. I guess it... I don't think it was a wall. I think it was I'm, a wall of, like... I'm just making a joke. Yeah. That was... Uh, that tool a couple of like the tools that I had done deprivation and beyond good and evil, uh, with, there was a super core cool that came from Alex. There were two gravel Rambos that came from Jojo with a complete list something. And it was an absurd. I, if I, I may have the number wrong, but it was something like 135,000 vertical meters of climb of waterfall climbing, mm-hmm. I, which I, I can imagine. Oh yeah. And, so those stools were durable. They lasted a long time. Um, I think the helmet, I'm uh, going have to get with John, but I'm pretty sure the helmet is well, part of that collection.
2: That's the thing that actually I'm most personally attached to because <laughs> so Oh, what, oh, when, oh, why? <laughs> yeah. So for those of you listening... The helmet we're talking about was a gravel helmet that I was wearing on the north face of Mount Augusta in June of 2002, when this rock the size of a briefcase, as my partner Charlie Cicera described it, which I never saw, hit me, um, never bounced. It just came out of the out of space and clocked me in the back of the head. So the scars were from the rock were on the helmet, yeah. Then that went into my back, and then into my spine, and knocked me off. So, had yeah. I not been wearing the helmet, I'm pretty sure you'd be having a different conversation right now. I'm.
1: I am also certain, and that was one thing. Like when Gravel started making those helmets, uh, I mean, it was. I mean, it's like bike helmet technology you know and and we were I believe the first company in the industry in the climbing you know outdoor industry to start using the you know I guess what you'd call like a compressible stiff foam lining with a pretty insignificant looking plastic shell over the outside it was a
2: pretty thin skin Yeah. yeah right but yeah it had the bike adjustment the center Knob that you turn, just like, yeah, like I still have at this point, I think. Yep, and uh, and it was lightweight and apparently durable enough to withstand. Yeah, you know, a
1: rock falling three thousand feet. I did hear later, you know, of some of those helmets like being getting broken in people's luggage. You know, dirt, you know, whatever. Because if there's not a head inside to support the phone, then the phone yeah. itself doesn't.
2: Well, I think that's uh, true in part, but I think it also depends on exactly where you get hit. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure had the rock hit me in the center of my head, that things would not have gone well. Okay, uh, just because of the impact, but it was a glancing blow off the back of my right side. That was just fortuitous in terms of my and, existence.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you were, were you? You were leading at the time, yeah. And then did not hang on. After having been hit by this briefcase,
2: well, I got knocked. I got knocked. Off. off yeah I took a 40 footer onto a, but I was a number, trying to... number 5 stopper actually <laughs> <laughs> the only piece I had in <laughs> fuck and uh, yeah so I ended up sort of paralyzed and my I think it was my left arm didn't work and was you know knocked out a bunch of teeth and I was bleeding and you know blah 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 but uh, Charlie you know lowered me and got me secure in the belay essentially yeah I was looking for a bivy spot we'd been climbing for only about 12 hours first day on this face and what had happened this was I'll just back up a little bit what had happened was the year before I'd had this rare autoimmune disease called Guillain that came out of nowhere when I was guiding a friend on Aconcagua in South America and so i ended up, you know, being life lighted back to the States thanks to my friend Tim and was fairly messed up from this disease, which can be fatal. You can die from it because it's an ascending paralysis of the the peripheral nervous system. It's a nervous system disorder. And uh you can die from asphyxiation as it ascends, it's an ascending paralysis. And so if you're not in a hospital or you can't be intubated and you have it severely, which I did, you end up suffocating because you can't breathe because your diaphragm you know isn't getting the electrical signals to it just it's, it's paralyzed so yeah. you can't you know you can't take a breath, you can't inhale. Anyway, that episode, which is a long story, went on you know for 53 days in the hospital and having to learn how to walk and do everything over again and uh, so that was you know winter and spring of 2001 by the summer I actually was able to I actually guided a friend from Bozeman here Tom Alilu on the Grand Traverse nine months after I got sick which was harder for me than it was for Tom and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway this idea came up with Charlie Cicero who I'd known for a long time in Alaska but we'd never climbed together was to like do something to sort of get back on the horse if you will Yeah. and uh, he spent some time in the you know, Logan St. Elias range I'd been there quite a bit myself but he had spied this unclimbed route on the north face of Mount Augusta, which is a border peak between Canada and the U.S. And, you know, it looked like a good thing to, like, get back on the horse. Mm. So we go there, we you know fly in, sit there on the sewer glacier, and get ready to do this thing. And in the process of us starting the climb, the temperature rose dramatically in that 12-hour time frame. It was i estimate it was probably in the you know high teens when we started in the morning across the shrine i led the first pitch know, we're just swapping leads and cruising along you know it was decent alpine climbing it wasn't hard it was just you know continuous 50 to 65 degree ice mm-hmm. and you know some runnels and you know pretty obvious line so when this Rock came out of nowhere. I was actually in the process of trying to look for a place to chop a ledge for the night to see if the temperatures would uh... because we felt that the temperature had risen probably into the upper thirties, low forties. Oh, in that short period of time, and we're on a north face, and it you know it's June, but it's you know we're in. Alaska for lack of a better term yeah. Canadian friends including my wife get pissed when I say I'm in Alaska It's actually Canada, but uh, <laughs> The Dramatic temperature shift is what created this rockfall. phone. We knew that was happening So we're trying to like find a place to, to hide take, Yeah, get out of the way And then this rock hits me so I end up you know being basically just taken care of by Charlie And he did a fantastic job of getting me secure, getting this tent up using my two Gravel tools as part of the anchor system, which was documented in film that the Canadian rescue rangers shot later after I'd been extricated from this place. He got me in this tent and got me secure and I could use one arm and we went through this whole long process of evaluating what our options were you know and I didn't I knew I couldn't repel I knew I actually couldn't be lowered because of the pain I was in and also I felt like I was fairly sure at least that I had internal injuries mm-hmm. And so, you know, even being lowered on my harness wasn't going to work. And so we went through this long, protracted process. And in my mind, it wasn't, there wasn't many options, you know. It doesn't,
1: as you've just described it, I can only really think yeah, cause of. because we're 3,000 feet up this thing. And, you know, yeah.
2: And, you know, it's a ways to the glacier. and
1: So. And this is, in 2002, at this point, there's no in-reach. There's, you're, we're not people aren't carrying sat phones at this time
2: well we we did have a sat phone okay at base camp my friend tim same guy i was on i can with let me borrow the sat phone which was rather key rather into the outcome (laughs) of this whole situation but it was at base camp because we didn't you know in those days sat phones you know were like the size of a brick and they weighed oh, about yeah. the same amount yeah. and uh, so we didn't take it with us but the sat phone was back at base so we ended up agreeing that the best option was for Charlie to leave me and descend by himself and get back to camp where he could get the sat phone and make the call so in the process of doing that um you know, he risked a lot to get off. Oh yeah, because the whole place was coming apart. You know, just rockfall and running water under the ice. You know, that kind of fucked up alpine scenario. <laughs> yeah, but you know, which had you
1: actually been in Alaska, you could call that part of the Alaska factor.
2: Well, it, I, as I said earlier, you know, I just lump it all in together because I'm not quite sure that the political boundaries really matter when it comes to the mountains. So, same kind of point taken. Terrain, you know, yeah, <laughs> and environment. So anyway, Charlie had this, you know, epic but very judicious process of getting off and coming up with anchors, you know, and. You know, putting ice screws in cracks and pounding on them like pitons to wrap off because the ice was shit. Yeah, and he gets off, he gets down to the shrund, barely gets over the shrund because it was so warm that everything had turned into the, like the consistency of a snow cone. And yeah. then he has to get across the glacier by himself. <laughs> go across this glacier that we had skied together, roped, and then left our skis and then roped, you know, traveled to the base of the route. He's got nothing. And initially, he crawled to try to, you know, keep his weight distribution distributed and had quite a ways to go before he got to his skis, finally gets to his skis, then he can, you know, travel more safely and skis on down to our base camp, which was, you know, quite a few miles, two or three miles out into the seward glacier there and then he makes the phone call yeah so we we had a sat phone but not as readily available as
1: my partner fell off the uh 17th pitch of the north buttress of the rooster comb in 1985 and broke his ankle uh john stoddard and
2: um isn't that the same place that alex fell off and
1: uh, the, I think he, he was a bit lower. Okay. Like we were on the, we, cause we climbed that pitch where he had t- he'd fallen like 80 feet or something. Yeah. Right. Something j- insane. Yeah. And, um, and that might've been the previous year. I can't, I mean, I, you know, we, but I remember that pitch where he had fallen. We're like, yeah, there's no gear for a long way. So we had climbed 16 pitches, bivvied first pitch next morning, um, John was aiding off of a nut somewhere uh, and crack it pulled. And then he caught his, caught his front points of his crampons in a tie off on a piton lower down. So we get down to the, you know, glacier. He, he crawls back to the tent and I like wade a trench through the snow. He crawls back to the tent. Um, We were able to rope up for that part, but then there was no air traffic for the next couple of days. So the CB radio was of no utility. Right. So I had to. I, I. Well, I was talking people down, and we're the only ones in the Northwest Fork. So I'm like, well, fuck. I guess I got to ski down to the Mountain House by myself, because I know there'll be people there.
2: You know, I did the same thing after uh oh, no, ISIS. ISIS yeah. 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 Same. Same
1: rough area. I mean, we would have joined paths on the glacier well, at a certain point. I started yeah. farther up the glacier than you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, North, the Ruth glacier is not really a, an accommodating place to, to, you know, move around. So I get, get down there. Then we fly back up, get John in the plane. Um, and then, you know, with a bunch of the gear to fly him out. Cause he, he's uh, not mobile. And, uh, and then I'm still, I'm back up the fucking glacier again by myself. Yep. I had to ski down again. And he's right. like, yeah, we'll send your pilot, you know, cause we were with Geating. Um, and so he sent Geeting in to get me from the mountain house eventually. But yeah, well, this is what Charlie like,
2: was dealing with on this uh, oh, yeah. deal with Augustus. So. It was
1: bitter cold in April of 85 when yeah. I was there, right. not 40 degrees of water running under the ice and,
2: but I would be, you know, remiss to not finish the story about Charlie because once he got to the tent and got on the sat phone and called his wife, Siri, his instructions, <laughs> you know Charlie Yeah. So he's, he goes, Siri, this is not a drill. <laughs> you need to call Daryl. Yeah. Daryl Miller. And so she did, because Daryl was, you know, at that time still the chief climate ranger at Denali in Talkeetna. She calls Daryl, and Daryl goes through this process of basically, as we now like to refer to it, as um, facilitating an invasion of Canada by U.S. military. (laughs)
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) Because he had to broker this deal between the Canadian government and the Canadian Park Service and so the, the US west because i'm in canada yeah right and, and they want to
1: fly because it's two tenths yeah so air, air guard he got a PJ hold of the right pjs
2: on. the two tenths, yeah. You know, and that's who you know came looking for me but he had to go through all this protocol and bureaucracy because this is right after this little thing called 911 mm-hmm. and so trying to get you know cross border things had gotten much more complicated than it would have been yeah. if it had been prior to 9-11 at any rate Daryl you know pulls it off gets the 210th to come in and he also Daryl put together this backup team of people in case you know the helicopter couldn't find me or get to me or I was in a place where they couldn't you Know get the wire down or whatever, yeah. So, uh, Colby Coombs, Kelly Cordes, Mike Alcatis, and Joe Reichert were the four. It's like, well, it's a pretty that's the A team right there, yeah. You know, (laughs) Joe was one of the climbing rangers, you know. Colby, you know, still owns AMS and Telkina, and Kelly and Alcatis were just there climbing and they volunteered. So, they get flown, whoops, they get flown to. Mm Talkeetna, and the 210th flies a C-130 and the Pavehawk to Talkeetna, and there's, excuse me, Yakutat, pardon me, Yakutat is where they're staging everything from the airport, and then they start looking for me, and Riker was going to be the spotter in the ship, because everybody else is... You know, not as much of a climber. Although there was this guy named Dave Schumann yeah, that could have done the job. But anyway, Joe comes along, and initially and he's got some experience looking for people on massive yeah. faces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> turns out you saved my life, but yeah. all of them did. But they initially are looking on the wrong side of the mountain because our illustrious pilot that had flown Charlie and I in, who. So, Remain unnamed. Told them that we were on a totally different side of the mountain than we were, even though we landed us on the glacier where our town was. Right. <clears throat> so initially they're looking 90 degrees around from where we were. Where I was, and you know the weather's it's not bluebird, so it's clouds are in and out. Yeah. And I can hear. I you know I ended up spending almost two and a half days on this led by myself but I heard them fairly soon within probably maybe 36 hours into it I heard okay the C-130 so I knew that Charlie had made it to the tent yeah yeah (laughs) which was not guaranteed which was not guaranteed and I knew they were probably looking for me yeah so eventually they do find me and the Pavehawk, you know, it's this massive, you know, helicopters, Yeah. And, and uh, they come in, and I'm on a steep enough wall that it was really hard for the pilot to get close enough into the wall with respect to the rotors mm-hmm. and be able to get this 200-foot wire down to where it could do me any good right and so they went through all these and are they get are they putting a person on the wire to come to you or yeah. okay yeah. and but initially they're just trying to get in position and yeah. suss it out I think and Rick Watson was the pilot and he'd been a you know pilot in Vietnam and awesome guy awesome pilot but you know there's there's ground residence issues you know there's, oh, yeah. you know and this is a You know, it's not high, but it's like 11,000 feet, I think. And uh, the wire, the cable for the winch, ran out of, you know, the right side of the ship, as you look at it, right? And so the pilot turns out, in the left seat, and he needed to be on that, you know, the mountain needed to be on the same side as he was, was, so so he could see what's going on with the rotors. Yeah so the wire's going out the opposite side of the ship which means it's that much farther from touching the face where i am yeah but they finally figured it out and they were doing all these maneuvers and they had to dump gas to be more maneuverable and the c-130 is flying around both for comms and it's the flying gas tank truck yeah so that's circling around, the helicopter's coming in and coming in, and they, they got Schumann down partway one of the times, and it wasn't going to work, and bring him back up. And uh, finally, they get in close enough, and he's got enough maneuverability because he dumped so much fuel, that if they got Dave on the slope, I think about 60 feet below me, he was able to climb up to me, and I'm, you know, I'm conscious. I'm actually, you know, I'm better than I was when Charlie left. Okay. I'm not, you know, I'm not great, but I'm, you know, I'm able to do things and converse. And, and uh, Dave comes up to the side of the tent and he just, he slices the tent open. <laughs> and he goes, we got 30 seconds to do this. <laughs> Which made perfect sense to me because it, I'm sitting there watching this shit go oh, on yeah. for, you know, they've been trying for for a while, a yeah. while, and I'm, you know, I'm underneath getting just blasted, boom, 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 you know, yeah, just hammered, you know. But it looked like a good idea to me to get out of there. So he clips the god's eye into my harness, but I'm actually still anchored. <laughs> Which, you know, I knew maybe sooner than he did, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, so suddenly the uh, helicopter is yeah, attached so now to I'm a the, mountain. Uh, yeah, which, you know, they're not really keen on that idea, it yeah. turns out. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I can see myself getting pulled through the side of the tent, you know, and all this other yeah. shit. So I finally, you know, I get everything you know, unclipped, and I reclip the God's Eye around through this different hole in the tent. And Schumann gives... Watson, the sign, and we, we slid down the snow initially mm-hmm. together because I found out later that you can't shock load these winch cables. Yeah. And the engineer, whose name I remember was Tom Dietrich, his job was to A, run the winch, but also B, cut the cable. Oh, yeah. If shit went south yes. and we, Schumann and I, We're putting the ship and everyone else at risk. Yeah, they're just going to cut the cable and that's it. So this amazing finesse maneuver by Rick Watson, the pilot, allowed this sliding action as we went down, for him to then move the ship out and down, and sort of lessen the shock load to the cable as we came into this. You know, having it be a J, and then you know, in terms of the shape of the cable yeah and then you know sliding down and finally you know loading it but not shock loading it to the point where they had to cut the cable and off we you know flew into space and i've said many times i said it was the first time i knew what it felt like to be a haul bag on lcap oh, we'll yeah. cut it loose you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh so schumann and i are you know hanging off the end of the wire being winched up into the ship yep. and I later found out that the entire dashboard is just flashing lights because they're out of fuel Yeah. but the C-130 you know is right there so as they're winching us up before we got into the side of the ship Rick Watson had docked into the back of the C-130 and was refueling as we finished being winched into the ship, right? I mean, it was amazing. So those guys, you know, Charlie first, then Daryl and Siri, then the PJs, mm. then all the boys and the that were on standby, the whole 210th, you know, PJ squadron were awesome. They're the ones that deserve all the credit.
1: It's pretty um, remarkable what... Um those guys can do or what the sugar bears that fly the Chinooks out of Fairbanks can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you said, yeah, they had to dump fuel. I mean, we had the 45 minute tour of Denali when we had to, we were trying to get those Spanish guys off the Upper West mm-hmm. rib yeah. because the helicopter was too heavy to land on the football field. Right like no one had ever landed one that high ever before either. So it was, there's that there's, you know, (laughs) we'd like to maybe be as light as possible. But, Mm -hmm. um, one of the guys, some mountain rescue guys that i talked to in Switzerland, like I was around the Eiger in 84, 85, a lot. And then back, um, working on a a movie, probably 92, 91 or 92. And one of these guys was talking about a, a situation like that where they couldn't get the bird close enough but um, also a much lighter machine. They're flying alouette. Alouette. Um, and the guy just started oscillating the thing to make the cable, not pendulum, but arc in a larger and larger circle mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it could make contact with the rescuer that they had dropped off previously um, so that he could basically grab it, but they couldn't get the bird, you know, directly over the patient and the right. that, that well, guy again. He's like, Like, wait, you're, like, doing the Samba or whatever with your helicopter to
2: to try and swing the cable off a vertical axis. What they can do is, some of those pilots are just amazing, but, you know, Schumann, he's just, you know, he's at the mercy of the whole thing. You know, he's just on the end of the cable, you know, coming down, you know, he's just hanging off the bottom of the ship. He got, you know, talk about the illusion of control, you know. So he he was as much at risk and a potential victim as I was, you know. Oh, sure. And and the whole ship was in the case of how close the blades were to the wall and just the whole thing, you know. So they, they later, um, that whole squadron got, um, I forget the actual name of the award, but it's a special military award for rescues, and they got a White House commendation, and they were invited to the White House, you know. Nice. Which they totally deserved. So, you know, it's a good story in that it had a good ending, you know. Yeah. But so many things, like most things in life, you know, shit can go sideways for so many different reasons, and why, you know, that happens sometimes, and why it doesn't, you know, presents, you know, a whole other conversation but I was indebted to all those people and so Charlie and I made sure we thanked them in yeah. a number of ways and uh, Schumann now is you know someone that he and I are joined at the hip you know oh, yeah. literally and figuratively for life because of it and he's you know somebody I see and talk to occasionally but consistently you know
1: what what in um what are the financial ramifications of an operation like that for you and charlie
2: if there well then are any it's interesting in the case of the pjs yeah, there's only i think four or five pj units in the united states there's one in san diego there's one in the east coast
1: yeah, there's there's there aren't a small probably number. no small number. Yeah, of it's them. a handful. Yes. of them.
2: Yeah, but the one in Alaska, I'm quite sure this is was the case at the time, and it may still be, but uh, I believe the politician's name was Frank Murkowski, mm-hmm. who was their senator, I believe. Since right, because right, I mean, I, I may have got this wrong. Whoever they named the airport after. In Anchorage, At any rate, they had gotten through congressional funding support for the two tenth to do civilian rescues, partially because of all
1: the light plane traffic. I'm guessing
2: in like that's what? part of it, but also there they were mandated to take care of all the fishing sea vessel type rescues in the Gulf of Alaska. Okay, they were. Mandated to, you know, and allowed to be the ones that went after, you know, lost hunters and snowmobilers that wrecked their machines and everything. So it's a pretty unique situation with respect to Alaska because they do civilian rescues. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't just being on Denali. Right. Or whatever. That was part of their mandate. And if you went through their base in Anchorage, you know, they... The locker room. I don't know if you ever. Oh yeah. yeah. So you know, here's the here's the sea rescue locker. locker. Here's, here's the mountaineering locker. Yeah. Here's the backwoods locker. Here's you know, yeah. just you know. So they had all of that funding f- from Congress to do these things. So to answer your question about Charlie and I, that was part of their budget and part of their mandate. Yeah. And the the touching part of it was that it actually took place in Canada. But again, Daryl Miller orchestrated that. And the two climbing rangers at Kiwanee National Park, the Canadian Wardens, um, Rick Staley and the other guy's name was, last name was Reese, I believe, they were on board. They knew Charlie and I. I had been in the range six times, I think, before that. Yeah. And, uh, we Charlie and I had actually had gone to Haynes, you know, junction and said hello and signed out and did our thing. So they were helpful also in coordinating, Co- coordinating all, and allowing, yeah. you know, because de- they didn't have the wherewithal. It's not like being in the Canadian Rockies, you know, they didn't have right. anything in Haines. What year was Kennedy? I went to Kennedy Twice. Well, I actually went there three times. I went there in 1978 with a bunch of guys from Oregon. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Tried to, to do the North Ridge? Tried to do the North Ridge, Alpine one. style. and yeah. We didn't get very far and climbed a couple of minor things. I went back in 95 to Kennedy with Jack Roberts. That was 95. 95. and Man, for we, some reason I
1: thought it was later.
2: Well, we'll get no. there. Okay. It was a year yeah. later, uh, <laughs> but only a year later. But 95 was an attempt by Jack and I on the the North Face, which we later called. He had one name, I had another. We still, you know, I can't joke with him anymore, obviously. But, you know, he he called it a pair of Jacks, which is clever. Yeah. And I called it Art Discipline, which is a better name in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) But he's not here to defend himself, unfortunately. At any rate, 95, we looked at the face and went... uh, Jesus. Oh wow. There's, <laughs> there's no place to spend the night, you know. And so we checked yeah. out and ran over, tried to climb the north ridge, got about halfway up and then a storm came in and we bailed. So when we came back and climbed the face it was in ninety six. Okay. And we brought a portal edge for part of it, which solved the Bibby problem. Um Man. So I went to Kennedy three times, I went to Logan three times, and Augusta. So seven seven different trips. <clears throat> you know, I went there the first time in 78, as I just said, before I'd ever gone to the Alaska Range. Because I didn't go to the Alaska Range until 79 when I went to on the first attempt at ISIS. Okay. I'd been in Alaska climbing in southeast with Fred Becky and two guys from Bowling here, Dougal McCarty and Craig Zaspel. Um, we went into the Juneau Icefields and we did a first ascent near Haines in the Chilkat Range. But, you know, it wasn't the Alaska Range. Yeah. So anyway, 78, we skied in from the Alcan. 75 miles because <laughs> we didn't have enough money to pay for the bush plane, you know, yeah. kind of thing. But anyway, my view of that range still to this day is the following. It's twice the size of Switzerland. It has, you know, a massive amount of mountains. Some of the climbing isn't as good as maybe a sort of classic alpine mixed, you know, safe routes like the Alaska Range has. Okay. But, you know, Logan is the largest, you know, single massif in the world, it turns out. Yeah. And uh, about on average, I haven't checked in the last year or two, but about on average, in a given year, about 110 to 120 people go into the range in its entirety. At all. Skiers and climbers combined. And the general average has been about 70 of those 110 or 20 go to Mount Logan. Of those people on Logan, 95% of them go to either the East Ridge or the King Trench. Yeah. So just doing the math, you know, (laughs) you have a couple dozen people every year that go into this place. To do something other than Logan. Yeah. That's enormous, and it still has, I think, as much potential, certainly now with how many things have been done in the Alaska range, it might have more potential for still new routes to be done. Yeah. But a lot of the safer, more classic objectives have been, you know, done. But it's wild, you know, and, you know, Brad Washburn is someone that I, you know, viewed as a very significant influence and resource in my especially early climbing in Alaska. Oh yeah. It was the first place he ever went in 1935 with Bob Bates, you know, and, and it was full-on exploring at that point, you know. So right now, you know, you, there's what, 1,200 people a year on Denali? <laughs> Most of those are on the West butt, Yeah. And then you got X amount of people, you know, in the rest of the whole range, which is not insignificant amount of people. And then you got this thing that's just this enormous, you know. And that doesn't even count the Fairweathers. You know, this just, I'm just talking the Logan St. Elias group that's, you know, a big chunk of it's the Colonia National Park in Canada. But then, of course, the border peaks like Augusta and St. Elias. I, like, I think my first exposure, like, I didn't uh,
1: know anything about anything up there. I mean, as a young climber, um, so my dad was tight with Wayne Mary. Wayne Mary ended up up there. Yeah, in Atlin, B.C. Yeah. Right. And, uh, he had, and my dad had put me in touch with him so that Wayne could talk me out of be you know, go on climbing. Right. Um, that, which didn't work. Um, and then, um, and then polar guard got invented <laughs> <laughs> and there were all those ads about like St. Elias and maybe in the fair, weather, St. Elias, I remember for sure, but these expeditions where they're just like, yeah, 30 days of with 28 of them, of precipitation, your insulation gets wet. If you're using down, you'll die. You know, or whatever right. the, the the copy
2: and well, the. There's a reason magazines. why these glaciers are 70 and 80 miles long. It <laughs> turns <laughs> yeah. out, <laughs> yeah, exactly, and, and sort of close to the Pacific Ocean also. And
1: also, and and that, and that's, and and then obviously there were some you know Northwest climbers um, uh, who had been in the Fairweathers. Um, some of them didn't come back from the Fairweathers. Right, right. Givler. Al Gilbert mm-hmm.
2: and Duzan Jugurski. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and they were,
1: um, you know, quite well known and uh, in in the Northwest. And and then um, I remember at some point, uh, Steve Mascioli and Bill Pilling went up there and did something, and you know, also said the weather was not really great. Bill Pilling
2: did a, a number of things up there,
1: and it just it never had the draw to me. I mean, my the first thing I went to in the Alaska range was, and it was because of Stoddard. He was like, we had just had a pretty good winter in the Canadian Rockies. And he said, we should go to Alaska. I want to go do the like ham and eggs or something, which we tried and he got hit in the face of the rock and we came down. And then, um, but, but by that point we had seen also the Colton Leach article about their trip to Mm -hmm. rooster cone. And then, the. uh, West, Huntington, West, West Face Huntington, West Face yeah. of Huntington, yeah. yeah, and then and so we're like that Roostercomb route. I was just like, oh, that looks like the Alps to me. That's like beautiful red granite. There's ice everywhere. I really want, to. and it's and it's not high, and yeah. it's not
2: high, yeah.
1: and it's also the height of your standard North Face in the Alps, like thirty-two hundred feet, three thousand feet or something. So, yeah. it it seemed like it was within reach. And then whatever experience, you know, we did we had um, had kind of nothing but failure on that trip um but i was like man this okay this this is what's up north for
2: well it's, for me, it's big country and i don't mean to you know dwell just on the logan san Elias because i you know <laughs> i had way more failures there than i did in the alaska range proper but how it, many times in the alaska range if you because uh, you've got to have
1: counted them up
2: Well, I have done 35 trips to Alaska. Okay. But that includes to southeast Alaska. That includes, again, with my inappropriate geopolitical point of view, the seven trips in the Logan St. Elias. Um, But a few. In the the range
1: proper, where does the diamond arete fall in the sort of
2: timeline the sequence well early on actually because um, the first successful route I did in the Alaskar was, was ISIS
1: oh um, yeah actually uh, let's talk about it. it's because so you tried in 78 79 was the first attempt first attempt yeah. and
2: Stutzman was like local ski patrol guy well Stutzman wasn't with me on the first attempt okay the guy I had climbed the south face of Waddington with in 77 fellow named Ken Kearns is who was on the attempt of ISIS in 79 and he's the one that took the 250 footer and broke his femur and yeah and the whole thing with Muggs and Jim Logan now Jamie um helping me rescue yeah that was my inauguration to the Alaska Range now, to the Alaska factor, actually. Yeah. To, now, to be quite <laughs> fair and accurate, you know, my experience on ISIS was not near as traumatic as Kenny's, because sure, you know, I didn't get hurt, but uh, yeah, that was Kenny and I had climbed together for about a two-year period where we six. I mean, this you know never happened since, where everything we tried, we got up including climbing the North Face of Granite Peak and the Baratus and doing first ascents on Cathedral Point and the Baratus and whatever, you know. Yeah. And uh, so we thought, let's, you know, take it to the next level. And I had found this unclimbed face on the southeast flank of Denali because of Brad Washburn's photos. photos and yeah. Talking to him and maps and, you know, and I remember we skied, from the mountain house all the way up to West Fork, past Rooster's Comb, past the North Face Huntington. Yeah. Around the corner. Looking at this thing and it was like Jesus fucking Christ. It's it's Himalayan. Scale, you know, the oh, yeah. face is eight thousand feet high. You
1: know? It's eight. Okay, I was gonna say it's, <laughs> I, I was gonna say six, but yeah, eight, and then you're not at the
2: top. You're a long way from the top. Oh right? yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is this flank, you know, that's miles from the summit and four thousand feet below. It's still the summit. below the summit. Yeah. yeah, right. It just tops out on the South Buttress Ridge that comes way out from the you know the right side of the south face. But anyway, that was our you know my first. Time And then second attempt, I went back the following year with Jim Kanzler from here in Bozeman. Yeah. And we got basically about the same place where Kenny fell, <laughs> and the weather just totally shit the bed. And so we wrapped off and ran down the glacier, and we actually ended up weathering a six-day storm on the West Fork of the Ruth underneath the north face of Huntington. Mm -hmm. was two Brits named Roger Muir and Steve Bell that had just done a new route on the east side of Huntington. Yeah, And then we went home. It's pretty amazing to to, uh, sit below that
1: face, especially when you can't see it. You can only hear Hear what's happening.
2: Yeah, well that thing is still, you know, I've gotten to know Simon McCartney now and I obviously knew Jack, and I yeah. still can't believe they did that. But yeah. they did. Nonetheless, um, in '81, I didn't go back to Alaska because I went to China, to Mount Segunyan with Schmitz and Kanzler and Danini. And Danini, right? Okay. That was my first expedition with Jim. '82 went back with Dave Stutzman. And that's when we did climb ISIS, finally. '83, <laughs> I went to the direct West Ridge Everest trip.
1: Which we were talking earlier yeah. about. So I'm going to veer off the Alaska thing, I, or, or veer towards it probably, because, uh, yeah, you get invited on the Everest trip and you can try and do the West Ridge direct in Alpine style, no oxygen. You've got all, I mean, a number of hitters on that yeah, team. Yeah, I was, <laughs> the, I was the weakest link yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by far. And just because that would have been eighty three, they'd already done Makalu.
2: John had climbed Makalu. He climbed a yeah. French Pillar. Yeah, yeah. And he says so he with
1: Kapsinski and and Kim Mom and fourth person.
2: Jim states states. There we yeah. go. Yeah, and I think John had also climbed dulagiri Okay, the year before, and Gary Shankar would have been. Uh,
1: pre-everest it, i think i think it was yes yeah because kim was i feel on like 79 or kim was on that trip yeah yeah and but, so. but then you end, up, you end up there with you know 12 climbers five support people it's a lot of personalities to sort of manage uh or be around or to manage yourself around i think you said something that was a seminal event that you know helped me understand what i wanted to do with climbing
2: well, it was a really good experience, as I have mentioned before. In that, you know, I got to be on the, you know, lead end of the climbing that was going on. Yeah. I ended up doing okay at altitude, which, on the way in, in the truck driving over the pass from Tingri to base camp, I set my personal altitude record, <laughs> which was eighteen thousand feet at the time. <clears throat> so I didn't have any altitude experience, yeah. so that that was a good learning experience for me. And, uh, you know, I actually ended up, at the end of the trip, uh, for a variety of reasons, John got sick, we switched from doing the direct West Ridge to trying to do the Hornbine. And I got, you know, I got one day, I just happened to be feeling okay, and I soloed up the Hornbine to... to the rock step Mm -hmm. Tom and Willie had climbed and had nothing with me I just thought I'd go out and see how far I could get kind of thing and you know that ended up being a good experience in the sense that you know I I wished I could have kept on going but I had, had nothing with me I mean I had no stove no food no bag you know had a parka you know yeah i'm just climbing along and it's beautiful ice actually but you know front pointing facing in you know actually i fell off and self-arrested somehow on blue ice <laughs> caught a my foot thing on my inside of my calf and i pitched off and i don't know how i stopped but i did because so i'm looking seven thousand feet down there. oh yeah cooler in the face and then uh, the next day basically the weather went to shit and that was the end of the trip but the main point was that it was a you know large-scale trip three months you know big expedition lots of you know time and money and all that and it's you know I'd done all these other alpine climb type trips already in Alaska and been to China and it just seemed like maybe the thing to do would be to just go back to smaller teams, alpine style, trying new routes, trying to do them in good style with small teams. And yeah. That's, I've never been on a trip since then with more than four climbers. And yeah, most of them uh, have been just me and one other guy. You and one other guy, or maybe a, th- I mean. Or a third, depending, dip. you know, like Logan was, you know, it was three of us. Yeah. But, you know, Jay and I. Went to Alaska, not that long ago, and we did five new routes in 17 days, and it was just the two of us. Of course, it's you know not at altitude, but and we did some real climbing. Yeah, yeah. and the other thing that it also was seminal for was at the time because I'd been on you know this trip with Ross and I'd gotten to know Jeff Lowe a little bit. <clears throat> And those were the only two guys, at that point in time that I recall, that could be, have been described as sponsored climbers, because John had a thing with Gore and right. Polar Tech or something yeah. else, you know. And Jeff was doing his thing with Low Alpine Systems, and then you know, later on Lee Talk, which you know, had its ups and downs. But I knew how much of a financial struggle it was for them. Oh yeah. I just went, you know, if these two guys, which are way better climbers than me, can't make it work, then I'm delusional, you know, to think that I can do that. So that's when I became a sales rep and went to work for Jim Danini as a sales guy. And that got me into the outdoor business, which is how I met you, you know, three years later. Yeah. And I just decided I'll figure out a way to pay for these trips. I'll go climbing with who I want. Where I want, and I'll figure out a way to make the financial part of it work, and that and that will necess- sort of what I did
1: necessarily affect the size or the, the the you know the gravity of the objectives in a way. It's like if you you know you wanted to, yeah, it, it, and the technology at the time you're not you know I'll just say maybe pre-white limbo, you know there were every team that went to Everest was big, right, right. Those dudes show up. There's three of them.
2: And yeah. No, it's awesome. Yeah.
1: Which, but but that's also not the accessible thing for most of it. Like, I, I, having never participated in one of those big expeditions, but like when Barry and I were on Everest, some you know people came with us and beginning to you know track to base camp, whatever. But after that, it's Barry and I and Hank Van Wilden as you know, base camp DJ and, you know, general helper. And then for a while we had our doctor there, whose name I can't remember, but just only that he was a veterinarian. And um <laughs> Scottish guy living in Canada. It's good so if we get distempered at least. You know. Yeah, exactly. But we were at their coincident with um Benoit Chamoux's team when they were trying to do the Spree to keep thing and climb all the eight thousand meter peaks it was you know, him mm-hmm. being sort of the central uh personality with a you know roving cast of characters that would come with them to the various things but those that was a big trip they had a lot of support and then the cowboys from the wyoming cowboys trip Mm -hmm. and that was a lot of people and a lot of support you know from you know everybody from Coors to you know who knows what else penthouse i think was one but um just seeing it from the outside it was never something that i was attracted to Mm -hmm. but
2: but I, but I never got it, you know, I never had
1: a bad taste from it. I could just, it was just an observer. Well,
2: and I didn't again. really have a bad taste from Everest. I just had, you know, some clarity. So again, I, I, I had a positive experience. But I will say, in reference to your, you know, size of team type of objective, I went to Pakistan three times. The first time was the only time I actually summited something. And, you know, four of us climbed this 36-pitch rock tower in the Piafo, And that was oh you know, nice. just, you know, four of us, Galen and me and Gray Thompson and a guy named Rob Milne. And uh, the next time I we went to Pakistan was with Danini, and we tried to do the first ascent of Uzum Brock, which is a peak next to the Ogre. Yeah. And we got 1,000 feet from the top, and the weather went to hell. And then I went to, the, to try to do the second ascent, a, a new route of the south pillar of the ogre with Chabot in 2000 oh right yeah so you know those are big objectives for just small teams so I did try to do that you know albeit you know we were unsuccessful on both the ogre and the Luz Brock trip but I was trying to do that kind of thing not you know 8,000 meter peaks I mean the ogres but, seven right? yeah but <laughs> It's big, turns out. Yeah. And somewhat technical. Well, plus, he, I would have to give credit also to
1: Jeff Lowe because, it, at least for, my, for me, because my first trip to the Himalayas, it was, you know, he and I and Allison Hargraves and Tom Frost on Kangtega, and then just he and I on NUPSI. Right. And somehow, you know, put the financing together. I, his approach definitely affected whatever I would be willing to do. So I think those no, are pretty, was, like any kind of early influences. He or.
2: was hugely instrumental yeah. in his vision about style and roots, and much less what he was able to climb from a technical standpoint. You yeah. Know. Oh, yeah. What has been interesting, I mean, I'm digressing a little bit, but um, you know, I went back to the Alaska Range to a large degree because it was easy to get to. It wasn't expensive. You didn't have to hire an LO. You know, you didn't have to change your money. You just bought a fucking plane ticket, and you could be on the glacier the same day you left here. Yeah. And yet there was, you know, at that point, in the 80s especially in the 90s, there was still a lot to do that, you know, was
1: worthy. And you also have a, you know, have chosen a job that sets up, you know... There's a seasonal aspect to sales work, Um, and it turned out to. uh, I mean, for me, at a certain point, I realized I was working just as hard to try and maintain sponsor relationships as I would at a normal job.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and and then I never really did that. Yeah, Yeah. and but I was working for companies, and I had to maintain that relationship because I had to perform. Sure, but it was more flexible in the early days than it became much later it was much more lucrative later to be honest but in the meantime it worked from the standpoint of the seasonality that you mentioned but as an example i had been to the west ridge of everest before i ever went to yosemite now how fucked up is that you know and and it's because of the time of year you know i just couldn't do everything you know so I made choices I went to Alaska and you know late April to the first of June and I came back and I started working for Exxon you know last summer would have been my 40th season at Exxon. No shit. Yeah and uh, you know I never made a living as a guide I just did it for something fun and interesting to do in the summer Um, most people actually thought I made a living as a guide, and I never made a living as a guide. I made a living as a sales rep. So I had this, you know, workable thing where I had some flexibility, time off. Being a part of the industry, I, you know, I could get, you know, gear, and I could get, you know, stuff. But, I, yeah. you know, it wasn't a matter of financial support. So it just ended up being what I was comfortable doing. You know. I'm
1: just doing this right now because Scott Backeys just sent me a text and so I'm gonna Well tell, tell Mr. Backeys I'm just gonna tell him why I'm not replying via yeah. a photo. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Good timing. Yeah. yeah. He um had that similar you know, similar thing with work and mm, right. like organizing climbing being so important that you organize your work either in the restaurant business film business you know and and now you know um with the sales rep gig basically and educational gig that he has that's what he does yeah yeah, and it still allows time for
2: um you know it's it's not like working at wells fargo in the teller office you know it's you have not to I'm not. I'm just using that as, an, as an example of something that's a rigid forty-hour work week where you have that a happens on limited time off. That happens on and it know, doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Right. I've been really lucky. You know, I mean, I got to do and see a lot of places in the world that I never would have if I hadn't been a climber. You know? Oh yeah. And that's been one of the great things. And the people, you know, that go along with it. You know, just like you, I got friends okay. all over the world because of climbing. Yeah. And uh, it's a great thing and I feel really lucky, you know, to still be here first of all. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, everybody everybody's got the same set of stories for different reasons that they may not have, you know, survived whether it be health or car wrecks or you know, has nothing necessarily to do with climbing or being in the mountains that yeah. you, you can have risk
1: yeah some of the the th- things you know we've probably uh, obviously in a, it's a a season and i don't know how long these seasons last or if it is seasonal but it, it feels like there's been a, a a a higher than average amount of loss in our you know say mountain community in last bit but i think and think back of like two people you know wolfgang being one of them in a car accident uh and then Mark Miller, British guy you know, was on that plane that crashed going to the Kathmandu airport like,
2: wait there's a whole long list of reasons you can die (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) the meat sack is not um, especially durable it turns out, but you think that, oh, this, this part of my life is the dangerous part as a climber and maybe I don't Address the other risks in the same way because they, you know, I'm down in the valley. It just seems more pedestrian in air quotes in in some kind of way. I mean, obviously the airplane thing in Kathmandu that's just short straw day. But um, right. like you treat things that are ne- that are higher, actually higher risk because of the man hours of exposure to driving on the highway, for example.
2: Yeah, I was you a know, sales rep. I, I drove thirty-five thousand miles a year. A year, yeah, and. You know statistically that's you shouldn't be here's nice not, not favorable <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 and so I think it, I think it's important to talk about the risk thing as it relates to the evolution of climbing within your own experience or your own lifetime so just speaking for myself You know, when I was in my 20s, like most people, I thought I was bulletproof, you know? I mean, you just think you're immortal because that's what you do at that age, you know? And and I'm not saying everybody, you know, thinks that way, but you're more prone to... Because you haven't had enough life experience to see, you know, shit go bad, you know, to change your point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I actually, I remember... The first time I thought that I was no longer bulletproof was when I had back surgery when I was 35 years old. It was the first time I got hurt. First time I had any kind of major medical, it's first time I'd ever had surgery, you know. And I just remember going, "Huh. Well, you know, maybe maybe I'm not <laughs> bulletproof." <laughs> and uh but more importantly, I think, you know, as time went on, you know, I obviously, like all of us, spent a fair amount of time in the mountains. And and also guiding, you know, which is dangerous work also. Um, Peter Lev said something
1: to me once. He said they're trying to kill you, the clients are
2: trying to kill each other, and they're trying to kill themselves. Yep, which is a, a truism. <laughs> The other thing Messner told me once was that guiding and climbing are mutually exclusive of each other. I would not disagree. Right. Yeah. So there's that. But anyway, the thing that, you know, was the evolution of my climbing. And then, you know, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the things that went wrong, but I, you know, I have had a fair amount of success at the same time. You're still here. Well, yeah, but I'm it's also talking about root. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, being here counts for sure. But I have had a lot of, you know, mishaps and mostly medical issues that weren't related to climbing. You know, I mean, guillain has nothing to do with. Yeah. just happened to be it, guiding Aconcagua. But that, it, when it, it happened, it, but it, it
1: is an broke. autoimmune thing that will right. crop up yeah. in response to certain stressors or something.
2: Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And then I, you know, I got malaria in Pakistan once, and I got <laughs> viral spinal meningitis in Pakistan, which, Pakistan hasn't been that nice to me. I to say, it sounds like uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love the place, but, you know, it's been a little rough. Yeah. Um, so you go down the list, you know, and I... The Guillain-Barre thing was for sure the biggest medical challenge in many respects. This accident last summer where I broke all these ribs and shit just sliding down these slabs was actually more significant recovery and more time in the hospital than the the wreck on Augusta. because Augusta i got you know I got flown to Providence I spent six days in the hospital just under supervision okay no surgery they gave so, me a back brace, and I got on a commercial flight and flew home to Bozeman by myself. So, so the
1: arm not working was... That was temporary. Was temporary that was just, nerve...
2: That was nerve whatever. paralysis, yeah. you know, compression stuff. Fuck. Yeah. I mean, I broke three vertebrae, but they weren't displaced enough to require surgery, and all the other injuries were superficial. I mean, I literally was in the hospital six days, flew home here, and you know, so, this thing last summer was was number two, you know right behind wow. right behind uh, the guillain Beret and the other you know you know I broke a hold and, <laughs> and and hit the ground in the Tetons on a route that I'd soloed and guided a hundred times and uh <clears throat> compressed two vertebrae. so you know I've had a few mishaps, but really. You know, if you take away the non-climbing related Mm -hmm. things and the viral spinal meningitis, I think actually is what was the major contributing factor to my immune system being weak, which predicated then getting Guillain-Barre five five months later. Um, You know, I haven't really been that hammered except for three times in the mountains. In one way, that speaks to really... I would say
1: exceptional risk assessment and management.
2: I've turned around I a mean, lot and a lot, lot, of, good, and you know, a lot of good luck also. Well right, and but I you know I you know I'm somewhat somewhat well documented that I've had to try routes more than once to get up them in Alaska, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for a variety of reasons, but nonetheless, you know, you, yeah, you have to go back sometimes more than your and, first attempt. And did, and some of that's, you
1: know, just luck of the draw with weather or conditions, but some of it, I think, like the harder things, it takes a while to figure out how to do them.
2: Absolutely. You know, the, you were asked earlier about the Diamond Arret. That yeah. was, that was 85, and so it was actually the first time Denis had ever gone climbing in Alaska. Oh, my. It was, you know, my, we were Working together, so you know we'd we'd been friends for a number of years already. But he hadn't actually gone climbing there. He'd done these little things called toriager and Latok, but he'd never been to Alaska. And uh, so (laughs) the little things. (laughs) So we go there, and you know, we get out of the plane and we do this thing. The first crack at it, you know. No shit. Yeah. So that was cool. You know, that was, <laughs> and, and it wasn't without its, you know, challenges, you know, because we dropped a rope. and I do recall something about yeah, uh, uh, a rope. Yeah, slithering away, halfway up the route. And then, you know, I got hit in the head with a chunk of ice, because as you personally know, I never climbed with a helmet until you and I went to Cody many years later so that so that was the (laughs) inciting incident well i'm
1: glad you started wearing a helmet because augusta would have turned out different (laughs) as you said
2: yeah right yeah so none of us wore helmets no none of us in the 80s you know and Just, just you know headband yeah it was cool
1: a hat or a hat yeah yeah right i uh there's some something happened. I don't remember what the inciting incident was for me, but probably enough waterfall climbing in the Canadian Rockies where, you know, I was just smashing and you know chipping away at shitty ice for a long
2: time to try and no, get placements. So and you're then. a faster learner than I am. That's all. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I hadn't done some ice climbing. Oh yeah. Prior to our trip to Cody, but I just you know. I feel very fortunate, and yet I don't, you know, I don't mind telling the stories about the shit that went, you know, bad, Um, but I really, you know, think it's important to balance, you know, what went well, and one of the things that went well for me was having great partners who became great friends. Yeah. That doesn't always happen in climbing, you know, but I think it happens a lot to the people that have that connection, you know. Um, So maybe we talked about it at the Alpine Club meeting also
1: uh, in Seattle. But the number of people that you stay in contact with regularly um, is—it's shocking to me and admirable. And then I I know of the existence of the box of letters and I know that like the 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 the, the relationship aspect of climbing and the and the powerful relationships that you can develop in the mountains that that are lifelong relationships. Um for you know, being a tough, stubborn sometimes kind of guy, you that, that the value of those friendships and the sort of the gregarious nature of it is really Im- I've noticed that it has been a very important aspect of your life and I would say in its uh, and, and climbing career more so than I think anybody else I've uh, th- that I know hmm.
2: Well, I, I appreciate you saying that I, I know that to some degree about myself and I've had, you know, a few people say they think that's somewhat, you know, unique for me to do that, I just enjoy it. You know, I think yeah I enjoy now, especially you know, this stage of life. Also, staying connected with younger climbers, and I do that in part just because I'm interested and you know, know people. But I've also had these things with the Alpine Club, like the climbing grant, the cutting edge yeah. grant. that I'm the chair of the committee along with Kate Rutherford and Kevin Mahoney and Jared Ogden and Nancy Fagan, the five of us are on the committee and that that connects me to younger cutting edge alpinists, you know. Yeah. Like this morning I texted Michael Gardner and he's you know, he's on the north side of the January East and, you know, Alan Rousseau is on the north face of Chanu with Matt Cornell and they all got blown off and are headed home. But I in part stay in touch with them because of the grants, but it's also just because they're people I like, you know. And they're they're the ones doing it. They're they're the vanguard, you know, of what's happening in Alpine climbing. And you know, another group of friends from Bozeman here, Ann Chase and her husband Jason Thompson, are on. Was peak in Nepal right now and trying a new route with Chantel, and we gave them a grant. So it nice. it allows me that sort of um, connection for reasons beyond just the climbing itself, but yeah. you know, because I'm I'm able to help them in a way that maybe you know these grants do, but I also just think they're doing really cool shit, you know, and the. And it's just nice to be able to call them friends, also. But I think, for some reason, I think because of sales reping and the way I had to communicate with my dealers, might have been part of how this thing evolved. About you know email and you know then texting and so forth being a yeah. the way we communicate. You know, too much obviously <laughs> these days. But uh, I don't know. I just. I just like it, you know. I I see value in it. Oh yeah. I mean, to me, not I'm I'm not talking about them, whoever them is. I'm talking. It's it's you know. I I like being able to understand the perspectives of younger climbers and what their motivation and what their goals and what they're doing and how much better they are than we ever were. In my You know stage of the game well it's super cool you know it's just so cool we gotta
1: we gotta touch on the better than we ever were thing at some point because context (laughs) timing but i understand but what so um we were talking earlier about you know some writing and doing some writing and different (laughs) projects and i knew you were
2: going to bring this oh you
1: bet (laughs) (laughs) and and the notion that someone may or may not want to read what someone else has to say and if you're the author and you're not convinced that people might want to know um something i would i'll I'll just give you an example so i'd give this presentation here in town the other night and i was blown away by the number of young people that were there Mm, that's awesome which to me i'm Like, I don't, and I'm reminded sometimes by people close to me, I don't, um, I am not conscious of whatever influence I may have had on other climbers who came after. Mm -hmm. I think you might be in the same position that maybe, you know, Jack Tackle doesn't think that, you know, uh, uh, anybody would want to read the thing. But if if I'm but the existence. I'm existent... just lazy. Actually, that's okay. The, I'm
2: just lazy. I don't mean to interrupt, but. Yeah.
1: Go but on. I think the existence of the relationships that you have with the with the younger generations of climbers, um, it, you know, it's it that's a, a relationship. It's two ways, and if you, know, you hadn't been influ- influential, if you didn't have uh, an extraordinary well of wisdom. To share, then those relationships wouldn't exist, and so someone wants to read this book, <laughs> so you should write
2: it. I, d- I don't disagree. I d-
1: okay, and and Points I. It's well taken, and uh, but I also know what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> but you should write a book. It's easy. It's mellow. Everyone should do it. No, no. Um, uh, but the, but the thing about that the, the I, I am honestly also blown away. Uh, you know when I stopped climbing. I also stopped looking at and reading about and so I have like probably a 10 year gap in my understanding of what happened mm-hmm. in, in climbing and it I too am blown away by how good people are now but that's also in really you know only in relation to uh, you know I'm like oh that number is different than the bigger num biggest number that i could ever have done or no, no, i'm not the,
2: talking about numbers per se but they but they also yeah. but the but the
1: the, the technical ability f- allows imagination feeds imagination right and and uh, and changes your vision if you can only fly, climb 510 you're not you, you're a, a, a route that would later be 513 you can't even see from right. where you are right um, and and I think that's that's something that's all of it. That's um, and so I think the technical aspect, you know, is is there, but that um, technical skill, technology, a lot of experience to draw from. That you know we had less history was shorter mm-hmm. for us, right? Because it was longer ago. Um, those three things combined to allow. Uh, you know, visionary adventures, attempts, you know, successful or not that uh I mean, I think within the context of our times, the technical aspect, the vision part of it were I don't think they're dissimilar within the era and everything that was going on around it. I know that um I do know that if I had had a higher level of rock climbing ability as Danini. Told me and others <laughs> once or twice, yeah. maybe more. Um, if I had a le- higher level of rock climbing ability, I would have been able to do better routes in the mountains. Absolutely, and the, the 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 level around me was higher than my own. What I had was a different relationship with risk, which also allowed me to see, do, envision, imagine, mm-hmm. and I think that's what I see. You know, in a way now, there's a certain amount of like climbing uh, potential and ambition and energy with people that get siphoned off towards, you know, it's like everything. It's a group of human beings. So 80% of them are going to be drawn towards the one thing. And then there's going to be these people, many of whom you just mentioned who are seeing in a way that I don't think it's dissimilar to what the way that we were seeing. And maybe I'm, and I'm
2: quite possibly wrong on that, but I don't think I, you're wrong. I just think what I meant by that, and I wanted to address a couple of things you said because I don't disagree with anything you're saying. What I, to be more clear, what I meant about people are just so much better. A lot of what that is based on is this body of knowledge that was a much smaller body of knowledge than it was 40 years ago, let's say, you know, in the context of alpine climbing, especially. But look at all this stuff that was done in the 70s and the 80s and the Himalayas, alpine style. In in a way, there's been a regression until recently of that exact type of climbing. You know, people like Wojtek and, you know, the Brits, you know, McIntyre and, you know, on down the list. Rab Martin, you know, all these guys were pushing it and climbing at fantastic levels. Yes, a long time ago, so it wasn't like that didn't exist. But what I meant was that I think that
1: particular generation, especially
2: in Britain, as you said, t- I mean, huh, you know, yeah, they, right. it, 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 whatever
1: ones, it was, like, yeah, I heard it called the generation of carnage, and it really stunted, you know. Uh, Development in climbing when when the the source of what would have become that vast body of knowledge
2: was just cut off. Right, but you, I think, had an influence beyond just your climbing. From the standpoint of training, because as you might remember, most of us in the seventies and eighties, you know, climbing was antithetical to the norm, and I was one of the few people I know at that time that came into climbing from organized athletics, Yeah. so I had this, you know, weight training discipline that, you know, athletics, organized athletics, you know, pretend, but I rejected all of it, you know, and one of the things I loved about climbing was, at least in those days, unfortunately it's not that way anymore, really, at least it's not as much. I loved it because it was anarchy. There was oh, nobody telling me what to do, how to do it, where to do it, mm. etc. Right. But more importantly, what I wanted to admit, you know, is it's not it's not that I'm delusional about the fact that I haven't had some influence maybe on some younger climbers. Okay. I mean, I wrote this essay in Voices from the Summit, which was sort of a turning point in all of that, and that was 23 years ago. Oh my gosh! Okay, we're old. <laughs> you remember what the title of the article is? I don't. The accidental mentor. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm not unaware of this. You know, you know, I always looked at people like Brad or. Ed Washburn or Doug Scott or you know whomever yeah Fred even you know Pat Callis you know all these people that were older than I that I respected enormously who had done all these things as you know being a mentor to me and I you know I sort of didn't realize that that was starting to transition into being a part of my life until you know I was 40 and uh So, I am not unaware that some of that may have occurred, and as it relates to, you know, whether somebody wanted to read something I had written or not, I've just always been a lot more comfortable doing what we're doing right now, Mm. or giving slideshows, and lecturing, or just talking, you know, to people, because it's it's easier. (laughs) Than writing <laughs> it's just a lot easier, so I am not trying to come up with an excuse. I'm just saying I acknowledge that, but mainly I have not been unaware that you know maybe some of the things I've done have had you know have meant something as a as a reference point or a benchmark yeah. or something you know that influenced somebody to you know do something themselves. Um, I think that just happens in life if you actually just stick around and do things, you know, keep doing things. In my case, I still like to go climbing. and I still feel like I could still get up a few things, even though I'm not 19 anymore. Have
1: you shared, like I know there's a, I don't know if it's a notebook or a box of stuff But, um, Jack Tackle has always had this, uh, list of shit that was out there waiting to be done.
2: The The, list, the list, the list. You're talking, I guess I'm talking talking about the list.
1: Yes, you are. Have you shared some of that? You know, some of those things that are still
2: undone with some younger folks? Well, there's two answers and these are honest answers. Yeah. Okay. Through the years I did share things from that list. I mean you yeah. told me about one. I looked at it and I went, That's fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Which one was that? That's the one that Jumbo did.
2: Yeah. Well I had been on it. <laughs> yeah. Twice. Yeah. That's the one that got away. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> really is actually. I'm still just Okay. But back to my reference points of things the, the, I did give away from the list two examples there's this little ice thing on Mount Sagunion that Mick Fowler and Paul Ramston did oh god yeah got the PLA Dior for yeah I gave that up in a moment of weakness to Mick Mick. in a pub in Sheffield in part because I knew how good he was yeah in part because I'd just gotten you know Recently, over having Guillaume Beret, and it seemed to me that I was, you know, unlikely to be ever able to do that so, kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. So that's one example. Second example, and again, in another moment of weakness, <sighs> in the hospital in Jackson, I gave up to Steve Koch what became Light Traveler. Oh on, yeah. On and yeah. Denali. Yeah, with Marco. Marco. I'd seen that line for twenty years and just hadn't gotten to it. And here I am, you know, mm-hmm. laying in bed, half paralyzed, <clears throat> and Koch comes, he came and saw me a lot. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I didn't have my Washburn photos with me. at <laughs> <You get to laughs> the hospital. Yeah. I went, hey. And they went and did it. So, so I have, you know, shared some of that. So the second half, the, the answer is, I still have the list of the stuff that I've actually tried. Okay. You know, then I'm not yet willing to <laughs> give up. <laughs> because... Because, you know, hope springs eternal, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's my two-part answer.
1: That's a pretty good answer. Yeah. And um, obviously that route that
2: Mick and Paul did... <laughs>
1: That year was... Unbelievable. Unreal. I
2: remember when we walked around to that side of Sagunyan, you know, in Mm -hmm. 1981 with, you know, Danini and Schmitz and Kanzler and I, and saw it for the first time. Yeah. I just thought, well, A, that's the most amazing ice line I've ever seen in the mountains, especially at that scale, you know. Yeah. Because it's only like 6,000 feet of ice climbing. And, uh... (laughs) And the other was, well, I'm really glad that we're not going to try that because that looks too hard, you know. And that's ten years in the future, yeah, Jack or well, whatever, yeah, whatever it was, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was twenty, three years between when I went when, there and when Mick did it, and when they did it.
1: I mean, I got to say, when I first saw that came around the corner and saw the South Pillar Nipsey, I was like, hmm, hmm. Uh, yeah. That's
2: <laughs> Yeah. I guess we're going to go there tomorrow.
1: It's <laughs> not 10 years in the future. This is... Well, it's also that's
2: you know it's not the same thing cuz that's yeah. massive and it's altitude, but that's how Kenny and I felt when we skied around the corner of the West Fork of the Ruth and saw Isis for the oh, first man. time cuz you know Brad's photos were one thing, you know, looking at the contour lines on the map were another, but Standing at the bottom of it, you know, let's you know, in 1979, it seems sort of, seems like, uh, sort
1: of big. I remember there was a, there was a waterfall route that was in Mountain Magazine, um, that, uh, it was in Austria, or, uh, I'm guessing. The name of this route thoroughly described my experience seeing some different things later in life. And the root, I believe, translated from German to English, was the trouser filler. <laughs> and <laughs> I kind of suspect that when you see I'm the, sure, ISIS I'm sure it up,
2: sounded even more
1: dramatic in German than I, it did in English. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm guessing that that was not a um, too far off from seeing ISIS up close and personal the first time.
2: Well, we were, you know, we were fairly, we were a good team, and we had. You know, decent amount of skill at that point. Mm-hmm. It was just awe-inspiring, you know, because of the scale. Because we'd never, either one um, of us had, you know, the South Face of Waddington's only three thousand feet. You yeah. know, so we hadn't stood underneath anything that big ever before. So it was, it was. I wouldn't say we you know, it scared us shitless. It just put us in a, a place that was a different reference point from then on because of the scale, you know, and I knew the South Face of Denali was even bigger, you know, but I hadn't skied to the bottom of that yet, so. Yeah. And I hadn't been in the (sighs) Himalayas, and, you know, I. So the North Ridge of Kennedy was only 7,000 feet, and that's the biggest thing I'd ever seen up until that point. So it was positive, but it wasn't like we just. Turned around and ran and, away. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because you obviously tried it. Yeah. How did
1: you end up what um, at Waddington? Like, wh- because well, that's
2: interesting. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to Waddington twice. Okay. The first time was 1975. I'd only been climbing a year and a half. That
0: seems appropriate. Yeah, well, you go know, just hmm. like <laughs> go
2: to the columns in downtown Eugene, go to Smith Rocks, and, and go to Waddington. You know, it's like. What what's the next logical step, right?
1: Well, somebody might have
2: maybe climbed Rainier on the way there. But well, actually, know. I did climb Rainier and oh, okay. a few other things. But though what happened was, actually, in all um, seriousness, the three guys I went with were all people I knew from going to school in Eugene at the University of Oregon. And... It wasn't my idea. It was one of the other guys's idea because he'd seen this book by Don and Phyllis Monday called *The Unknown Mountain*, okay, which was published a long time ago about their nine exploratory trips in the twenties and thirties into Waddington. No shit. Where do where where can where do you see it from? Like that well, would the, draw you in there. Well, this is an interesting point. Waddington wasn't discovered until the advent of air travel, except by Native Americans. Mm-hmm. But as far as white folk, nobody knew it existed until airplanes started flying, because you can't see it from, from anywhere, anywhere. Okay. at that point. Okay. You couldn't see it from yeah. any road. You can't see it from you know, the inside passage by Vancouver Island. You can't see it from any of the fjords like Night Inlet and Butte Inlet and all this stuff there. Sort of close, but not really. It's you know, it was unknown because no one could see it. And it's 12,000 feet, no, it's 13.2. Oh. 13.2, okay, yeah. so
1: it sticks up. It,
2: yeah. you know, it's only 25 miles as the crow flies from saltwater.
1: It's that close, yeah, yeah. As crow flies. Right. I know nothing about this range in terms of like, yeah. I, oh, I know the general area. Uh.
2: Yeah, so the Coast Range of BC, you know, at that point was this remote wilderness, you know, and the Mondays, you know, tried, you know, nine consecutive years, I think it was, to do the first ascent. They climbed the the fault summit, which is the peak to the left as you look at the south face. There's Mm -hmm. this large couloir that splits the The sort of two faces. Yeah, And uh, so they did get up that, but... uh, then realized it was... They just didn't have maybe the skill sets that, you know, the face. And because, you know, there wasn't helicopters and there's no... Oh, you There's no ski planes in B.C. They don't do that. They only did floats. So if you couldn't land on water, well, it's not like going into Alaska from yeah. Telkin yeah. or going into St. Elias. There's no ski planes. And
1: plus in the 20s and 30s, you are packing flour... <laughs> On your back for food. I mean, right.
2: So we got intrigued with the story of this, but then you know, subsequently, you know, the first ascent of Waddington was done in 1936 by Fritz Wiesner and Bill House, and uh, that was both the first ascent of the peak and the first ascent of the south face. Okay. Six years later, Fred and his brother Helmy, Becky went in there when they were 19 and 16 years old, respectively. Helmy actually turned 16 on the climb. And they spent, you know, I think seven or eight weeks in there because ferrying loads, you know, up and back, up and back to get in there, which is what Fritz and Bill House and Betty Woolsey also did. So those two climbs were actually the first and second ascent of the peak. And, you know, Fred and his brother did a variation in the upper 500 feet from what Fritz and Bill House had done. And so, by the mid-70s, what had been done on Waddington was what became known as the standard route, which is the southeast ridge, and it was done by Al Steck in 1953. But the south face, when Kenny and I successfully climbed it in 77, I went in there in 75 with these three other guys from Oregon, and we were, you know, I didn't know anything. I mean, I knew nothing, you know, comparatively. <laughs> and we tried to do a brand-new line from the very bottom because we knew where, you know, the other guys Fritz yeah. and Fred's route were. And it was just horrendous rock. And just, we, you know, we... We barely were able to figure out how to get off, you know, because the rock was so bad, and the weather was bad. But I go back in 77 with Ken Kearns, and in the meantime, I'd spent the summer in Alaska with Fred in the Puno Ice Icefields and the Chilkats, <coughs> and, you know, I'd talked to him about their climb and learned a little bit more, quite a bit more from Fred about how to stay alive in the mountains. and uh, we go back there, and we have perfect weather. and So we climbed this route on the South Face and No one had climbed it since 1942, Fred and his brother had. It was a 35-year gap. Fuck. And then we did three other new routes on three other peaks besides. And the weather was like it is here today. and you know, we just finally we just got tired of it and just left. And it was still high pressure. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's how I ended up, you know, going to Waddington. My first try was to these guys in Oregon that just hadn't known about this book from the Mondays. And then, you know, I I went there and decided I should go back with people that, you know, I could could climb with. We talk about
1: those early trips in the mountains where you really don't know shit and probably shouldn't be there and if you got out alive you were right. you were super lucky um, I uh, there's a peak in the Cascades called Big Four and yeah. it's the Monte Cristo area and some uh, it's a cool fucking looking face in the winter summer it's uh, it's got a lot of brush on it it's a lot of Fred, Becky, grab it if it's green type of climbing. Sort of like the North Face Index?
2: Yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's the probably the same elevation, same, yeah. you know, it's that same zone. And I went out there with uh, this kid from high school, Steve Claussen. And we thought that we could climb this. It's a 4,000-foot face, 3,500 for something like that. And um, we had no fucking idea. The rope that we had was a one hundred and fifty foot piece of one inch tubular webbing. Nice. <laughs> Had some uh SMC uh those camming nuts that they made. Yeah. yeah I remember those. Which one. I can't remember. And yeah. maybe a forest Teton or two or something like that, you right, know? Right. And uh yeah, I didn't get so far, and I think it was shortly thereafter when my uncle took me to Ross slideshow about Shankar and um, Nanda Devi, you know, also to try and convince me not to go climbing. And then I got to shake John's hand, and I was whole body shaking, standing in front of him, meeting him as an 18-year-old or whatever, and um, yeah, so I survived the one-inch tubular. Happily, no falls were taken. <laughs> and we also didn't get very far, you know, because it was right. wet. <laughs> Cascades running with water. But it's the... Uh, one of the things that my... Uh, Talked the other night. I have, I have this thesis about the, the balance of hubris and humility and the requirement, mm-hmm. you know, between mm-hmm. the, the, the.
2: Those are two important H's, actually. Yes. Mm-hmm. And,
1: and when you combine them together, you get the 119th element on the periodic table, which is symbolized by H U, which is human. Um, if you have a good balance of both of those. So you have to have the hubris to try. Uh, well, you have to have the humility to say, I don't know, but I want to and then you have to have hubris in order to imagine these things and actually go try them and ha- to be able to survive that useful hubris of like getting into waddington with you know out the requisite skill or experiences to to be there that's that's a that's a tackle story i love hearing
2: well you know like you were talking about earlier your cb radios didn't do your shit well there wasn't uh, even anybody to talk to oh had we yeah. had one you know so we had not no communication for a month each trip. Uh, and we just went in there and went home when we got ready to go home for whatever reason. So, uh,
1: which is really fucking wild. Like in, in comparison to now, where it is instantaneous. Where you know you can get a weather forecast by some smart motherfucker in Penn State or something. You yeah, know, right. sent to you by text or whatever. In order to you know make these decisions that used to be made by different mechanisms, yeah. let's well, say.
2: By the seat of your pants or by intuition or combination.
1: Or maybe pants. you have a barometer,
2: you know, like you get the... I, just, I remember um 94
1: when Scott and I were below Hunter for, you know, three weeks of bad weather p- playing fucking altimeter, you know, ping pong. Or I mean, just... Right. Just, I had this brand new fucking... Digital altimeter thermometer that I'd gotten in France. I can't remember the name of it now, but, and that thing was all over the place. The Avocet watch was all over the place. Like, how do you make it, you know, now you, you is, is having more information better?
2: Not <laughs> entirely. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. maybe just wait like, till it clears up and go climbing. You yeah. Know, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, but. that's the wisdom. right there. <laughs> Well, it, I will say that, uh, those early trips were were good learning experiences because there weren't a lot of distractions but you know it's always been what I've referred to as the apprenticeship which yeah. is, if you can survive the first two or three years you know in this case climbing as you survive the apprenticeship then you got at least a higher degree of chance of you know making it for the long haul yeah. No guarantees, obviously. But that first, you know, period of time is pretty important. And what's ironic in my own particular case is that, you know, I later become a a guide. And I never got one moment of formal instruction when I started climbing. We just, it was these other guys here in Bozeman that I learned to climb with. Mm Mm-hmm. And Royals Rockcraft books. That was it. We'd buy basic and advanced rockcraft and open the book and go out to the crag and figure it out. Literally. Wow. And I just, in hindsight, I look at that and go, you know, it would have been so much better if I'd gotten some formal instruction. I would have been able to, you know, not only have more skill, but I would have been able to progress much faster. Sure, had I had someone you know that knew more than I did, and you know that came a little bit later when I started climbing more, and I was able to then climb with people that knew more than I did, like Jim Kanzler and Pat Callis, and but not and, initially. And know? those guys were, would, I mean, would you characterize them as
1: mentors? Like if you well, were looking Pat, back at their career, for
2: sure. Was yeah. And I looked up to Kanzler quite a bit, because he was an extremely gifted climber, and he was older than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, he was not as much of a personality for mentorship than, say, Pat. And I'm not, you know, I'm not criticizing him. He's just, that no. was his... <coughs> it's a temperament thing. His That's M.O., a, you know? yeah. And, uh, but Pat, for sure. And, you know, Fred, you know, and Al- Al- Galen. You know, I mean, I mean he, Schmitz, I mean, all the, Danini, like all these guys were, you know, better, more experienced, and older than I was. And I, you know, benefited from learning a lot from them because of their experience and wisdom.
1: Yeah. The crew at Exxon at that, in sort of the period, when, I mean, my first visit out there would have been June of 1980 that was my first formal instruction right right tell me that yeah yeah. that was two Um,
2: years before I
1: started yeah Schmitz Carmen Chuck Pratt Yvonne Peter Lev Harry Frischman yeah maybe Harry Frischman Um, and but to have guys like that coalesced in a place where you could actually go learn from them for a
2: ten day period Chuck Turner was an amazing amazing. teacher he was there Dave Carmen there were only 18 guides when I started at Exxon. Okay. Yeah. And today? It was like 75. On the roster, anyway. So, it's, uh, <clears throat> as a discipline, it's become more popular. As Not a, only the
1: guiding, but the, the desire to
2: well, climb mean, things. Climbing, turns out, is a little more popular than it was in 1982. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... Anyway, my point about Exum was at that point, you know, they were, especially people like Chuck and Kim, you know, and Turner had actually done some real good climbing with, you know, little known people like Leighton Corr and Royal Robbins and, mm-hmm. you know, and Jeff Foote, you know, and Herbie oh, right. Swedland, Yeah, you know, those were the people I learned from Charles Marshall Pratt was—he uh, was the man. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: don't remember exactly. I think the trip was, or that whatever visit, and maybe it only had just been one route um, with Chris sh- shooting photographs, mm-hmm. and we ended up on oversight, yep. and um, I don't know even now, I mean, I was yeah, down there and I, and I talked with Malky last winter a little bit and we had talked about and we talked about it that route. I, I sense that it doesn't, the upper thing that we got on doesn't always, doesn't always form, I don't think. Doesn't always form. Um, apparently, since we climbed it, it was formed, but I
2: recall that it was not very big. It wasn't that big, but it was not very good ice either. That's what I remember. Okay. Which is why the three-foot chunk dropped on my head as I went over the... Well, I did leave it there after... You, you sort of stuck it back in there, right?
1: <laughs> hoping I'd touch it
2: and drop on my head because I wasn't it would... wearing a helmet.
1: Hoping... <laughs> yes, that is exactly was my... I, I knew that that day, and my mission was to convince Jack that a oh, helmet is a good thing. You still have um, that photo of me bleeding in the face, don't
2: you? Probably, oh, yeah. Right.
1: You know, there's... there's and, and so this is another... Thing. Like, if we look, look back, at, because it, at least in my head, a lot of my references for certain things are like are photographs or, sure. or, or an image, a visual image of some kind. Right. Um, I suspect you have an, a large number of photographs. Slides on film. Yeah. What, uh, as let's just, let's just pretend to call ourselves stewards of climbing history. We're pretty bad at it, but
2: at least I am. Um, what do you, what do we do with those? Well, I've had this conversation with a number of people through the years. The first answer I have is I have Thousands of slides and boxes and carousels still in my garage as, yeah. we, as we speak. So my first answer would be, you know, need to digitize more than I have. Mm-hmm. But secondly, um, and this pertains, you know, to photographs for sure, but it also pertains to other types of R- R- recording mediums, history. Yeah as it relates to print photographs and also letters. In fact, since I saw you just a few weeks ago or talked to you anyway, um I found I was going through all these boxes because the Alpine Club is doing this cool thing about interviews with, you know, people who are getting up there in age and have done some stuff. Okay and uh, it's called the legacy vip series and they've done jim mccarthy and tom Hornbein actually championed it and they've done 71 interviews with a lot of no important kidding. good climbers and a lot of them aren't here anymore and this has only been going on for 10 11 years okay um but the reason i bring it up is that um pat and i hosted at our house in tucson um uh, a series of these things, where four of us were interviewed last March, for that, and subsequently the videographer, a guy named Jim Aikman, you probably know of, um, he's the guy that put together Metanoia for Jeff. Oh yeah, at okay. The, at the end, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, <clears throat> they've taken select amounts of these interviews and are doing a five-minute condensed video. They'll put out on the AAC website to have is like a trailer or just a short, right. if you will. And so Jim Aikman wants me to, you know, supply a bunch of stuff that you know was before Kodachrome was invented, and sort of not quite, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And uh, so I had to dig up all these, you know, prints of my childhood and you know shit from high school and early climbing and blah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. I played in a rock and roll band in high school, so I had to find that. And So in the process, though, what I'm getting to here is that I found a, a number of letters that I didn't even remember I had, which I would say are, you know, at least in my estimation, historic. One's a letter from Bridwell. Written in pencil in longhand, to, yeah. to me, inviting me to go to the West Ridge of Everest the year after I was there, with him and you know the rest of the team. And then I found a letter from Galen, same kind of thing, you know, handwritten that had to do with uh, going to Pakistan in '84, which is what I ended up doing because we'd been on Everest in 83 together. Yeah. And, you know, some other things, you know, so these are, you know, it raises the same question, you know, what do I do with this stuff? You yeah, know, that's, you know, it has some meaning, I think, historically. It's more maybe important to me personally, but it's also, you know, in the case of those two guys, you know, they're not here anymore. Yeah, And uh, so, you know, the Alpine Club, you know, was you know, was I've talked to Randy Jackson about it. Who's a close friend and climbing partner, and you know, as as good a historian as I know about American climbing, and not just the Tetons, where he you know knows every. Where he knows single, everything, <laughs> single fact known to man. But it, you know, what do you what do you do with these things? You know, so I think, you know, small steps are being taken by you know different alpine clubs and different maybe organizations but I think personally people you know like myself might need to start thinking about what we do with this stuff that somehow you know conveys this information to a broader audience but also you know from a standpoint of preservation you know allows it to you know go on in perpetuity something that you can relate to extremely uh, close I think was when Pat and I were in Chamonix last month or you know yeah last month um, we had a ch- I just by chance ran into and met Francois Marcinet. fuck yeah right yeah I'm up at the top of the Brevant with Pat having lunch and I'm nice. walking around and there's these five old French guys over here you know <laughs> yep <laughs> and they're jabbering away and, and you know, can't, I can't understand a word. And one of them walks over to me and asks, "Will you, you know, in good English, you know, will you take a photo of the group?" And I go, "Yeah, sure." You know, and I just so happened to be wearing a jacket that said Exxon on it. Okay, just you know, piece of outerwear because it yeah. was cold. And uh, so he, you know, he asked if I work for Exum. And I go, "Yeah." And, introduce ourselves and you know and and i'm like huh so i get to tell him that i tried to do his route that he and parking did on territory with Fabrizio, except yeah. it was running with water but he invited us pat and i to come to Ansa. nice which i trust he's been there
1: <laughs> i just love how a bunch of my old Anarchist climbing friends have become like functionaries. You know, they're like right. the professors. Well, he's now. running like, the joint. Oh yeah. yeah, right. Yeah.
2: But anyway, he invites us down and gives us and takes us up to the library, right? Yeah. Right. Case in point to your, you yeah. know, the topic here, which is preservation and you know, documents being stored and accessible to the public. Yes. So you know. They they have twenty thousand volumes in the library now, wow. and none of it is about anything other than climbing. You know, it ain't Reader's Digest. You know, it's like yeah. everything that's only climbing, and whether it's guidebooks, whether it's you know books I've never seen because they've never printed in English. You know, yep, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, as a as a side note, I get the tour from the librarian and you know francois for whatever reason knew who i was you know and so we start talking and then he introduces us to the librarian for whatever reason (laughs) go fuck yourself (laughs) well you know no no i do know i fucking. mean i've heard of him all my life you know anyway yeah (laughs) i i go through this tour with this really wonderful lady named elsa who's the librarian and uh I started asking her if they had, you know, a few of these books, like Voices from the Summit. Mm-hmm. I said, Well I've written... excuse me. I've written some things for uh, Alpinist and Well it turns out they don't have the first couple of issues of Alpinist, even though they got the collection, right? I go, well, yeah, right.
1: Those are the only ones I have.
2: (laughs) Well, they're rare, as you know, because of the warehouse fire.
1: Oh, I didn't, I don't don't know.
2: Alpinus lost all of the back issues from 13 down to zero that they had in stock in a warehouse fire in Chicago years ago. So there are, you know, like if you go on the website and you want to buy back issues, it stops at 14. At 14, okay. Yeah whatever happens to be available now. But that's what happened. So I had no idea. Yeah. And since I had written this, you know, piece about Matt Augusta in the first issue, yeah, issue one anyway.
1: Because um, there is an issue zero. Yeah, with
2: yeah. Leo on the cover. Exactly. Yeah, yes. Right. <laughs> Which I have, you know, three or four of those, but I got maybe six or eight number ones. Okay. Still, you know, I've given a few away. Yeah. So I said, well, I'd be happy to, you know, send these extra copies of this thing so even a place like that you know doesn't have everything anyway just between what I know the Alpine Club Library is trying to do and what it has and what other resources are that you know used to be personal libraries like Nick Clinch's library which is now at the Alpine Club oh good yeah um I think to your point about younger climbers coming to your talk and being interested, I think there's a tremendous amount of interest from younger people to also do more history and research with respect to previous things that have been done versus just talking to you or talking to me or something at a slideshow. Um, Because there's a lot of people that don't know, even our contemporaries don't know as much history as some people. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I I I know some.
1: I feel remiss in that. Um and I don't in, in Banff in 2019 we had this little round table it was I don't know it wasn't a some people took some pictures whatever but it was Barry and I and Will Gadd and some other people uh in Holmes was with us. Um, and one of the things that Will said is that, hey, we've been poor custodians of our history and traditions. Mm-hmm. And this is something, if we want climbing to a, not repeat itself, but also be less destructive to the resource in a way. Um, because just, like, if I just look back, I mean, I, I found the other day when all of the texts that I had written for all the Style Matters ads when we were running Gravel mm-hmm. and uh or North America excuse me and like man that was an, that was an attempt on my part to A show what had been done yeah. in the past like
2: the one with Henry
1: oh yeah right that was one of the and that was one of the best ones yeah, uh, I, mean, but I Bouchard, remember all of them actually I'm... yeah there were I mean it was Marco it was Henry it was Bouchard Todd Bibbler Doug Cluen, obviously and it and but it was an attempt to sort of immortalize some of these things or bring, it, bring them to light, things that had been done, um, to things that had been accomplished at a really high ethical standard that I thought was flagging at the time in the climate community. Mm-hmm. So there was a, you know, an attempt to sort of change something, influence something. And not that those are historical documents, but just this idea of like presenting this history in a way that is accessible to the sort of modern mechanisms of you know, knowledge acquisition or consumption.
2: All right. Well, that, that's a really good example of what this legacy thing is trying to do. And, okay. And I'm just referencing one example. John Gill you know, was climbing 513 mm-hmm. in the 50s. Yeah, he just didn't know it, you know. Yeah. and no one else did either, you know. Without a rope, you fucking know?
1: remarkable to walk through the needles and see those little white oh. arrows painted on shit, and then
2: try and <laughs> <laughs> right, run away. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but he's one of the people that not only a long interview was done with, uh, but they made a short. Okay, that's part of this thing that they're you know, working on with me and George Lowe right now as the next two. But it's an example of what can be done. Well, not only that, of a lot of people that aren't, you know, for whatever reason don't have a connection to that era of climbing. You know, we we gave John Gill the underhill, you know, 40 years after he was doing those kind of things in part because there wasn't an underhill when he was doing them but you know but he was you know such a pioneer and you know was doing the same kind of thing that was going on in Dresden a hundred years ago you know kind of thing with people you know climbing 511 when people didn't even know what that was oh yeah so it's uh, the custodian of history thing I think you know, through modern technology, there's there's actually a lot of opportunities, in a way, because you know, video and being able to, you know, digitize things and that kind of thing, you know, at least gives a preservation component to things that you know maybe didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. Um, but the custodian thing. You know, I know you know about this, but the worst example I can think of personally is what a bunch of us did with respect to the climbing in the Bertus. which I know you know about, right? And for our this listeners that it don't it? know, you know, <laughs> we came up with this sort of silly pact that we wouldn't publish anything about the new routes that we were doing in the 70s and 80s and mm-hmm. 90s and so forth. And now a lot of that history is... is you know, at the point of risk for not being documented. Yeah. Because, you know, some, like Kanzler's not here anymore, you know, right? And so forth. Um. And uh, it was done out of, you know, a combination of protectionism, hubris, and also, well, mainly those two things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the yeah. whole thing about, well, if there's a guidebook and we publish all this stuff, then all these people are going to come and climb there and it won't be the same, which, you know, is actually an argument that holds up. It's just, sure it was a bad idea in hindsight. And we need to, you know, I've talked to Pat Callis about it and Dougal McCarty and Terry Kennedy and Brian Leo and all these other people that are still here. And yeah, we need, to, we need to correct that before it's too late because there's a lot of stuff that got done that wasn't trivial we're not talking about you know one and two pitch rock climbs yeah alone we're talking about big big climbs you know rock climbs walls ice climbs winter climbs and i'm not saying that i was that important in it but i'm just part of the problem about you know not Omerta. <laughs> I was always willing and still am to talk to people about it. I just didn't want to put it in the put it in print. Put it in print, where someone could or give someone a
1: map. I mean, there is a like it's an interesting. It was sort of silly in hindsight, but we did, That's what we did. But yeah. yeah, that'd be that'd be cool if that got corrected in in some way. I mean, I spent like I mean, I had a few conversations with Dougal... Uh, in the rock gym you know earlier this year Mm -hmm. like holy shit a lot has happened here that never you know knowledge of which never left the state in a way which and it's maybe not important that you know it does that it gets broadcast, but if it could be accurately recorded, that's all I'm. For talking the about for the too. for the deep miners to
2: discover at some point. Well, and also to just be historically correct, so people don't yeah. be aren't doing go routes and think that you know they've never been climbed before, which has happened. Which has happened. I mean, I, yeah, like right. the the very first new route I
1: ever did was the second ascent,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know. Uh, the other Mark and I, um, who did that thing on the West face of Kolchak balanced rock in the cascades it's called the death party. But you know, Jack, somebody, and somebody else done it, you know, like a couple of years before, but left, but left no trace. Mm-hmm. Right. And you go up there and you're like, no one has ever done this. And the only thing now is like, yeah, we did. I went back later to try and rectify my, mis- my mistake in a way by, um, participating in the first free ascent of it. But, you know, at the time, I mean, there were there were things, there were probably a number of things like that in the casting. I think there are different ranges around the West where people were like, shh, shh. Yeah, well, There's a ton of shit here, and we'll get to do it first yeah. if we keep our, you
2: know. Right, that was part of it for sure. But it was also the, the anti-guidebook. Mentality, if you will, you know. Yeah, publish means, you know, people will come. You know, it,
1: but you're also um, affecting their experience in 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 the way that, like, I mean, now you have like move by move topos for certain for shit. Right. I mean, I I don't know if that's true or not. I'm just making it up on the fly to be as ridiculous as possible, but. You know, you can at some point have so much information that the that your experience is necessarily affected in some way.
2: Well, I think talking to Rennie, because he's just finished rewriting and updating this small little tune called The Guide to the Tetons, <laughs> which is about, you know, thicker than this microphone. Yeah. Um, he would, I think, argue that the main benefit and the main tool he's trying to provide is to provide a historical record of what's been done, so that people, you know, not only know that but can reference that with respect to their own experience. Yeah. You know, and I can't have argue that be that. set yeah. in stone, sort of, you know, figuratively and literally, of what did happen. Yeah. And you know, a place like the Tetons actually had f- a fair amount of documentation because of, you know, having to sign out and go to the ranger stations in the early days. and You know, the person that did all that more than anyone else was Lee Ordenberger. Okay. Oh, early on, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, after the war, that's who wrote the guy books and kept copious notes, and Rennie has all of his letters and all of his notes, and, you know, it's just this huge archive and so that that's where it comes back to this you know question you were asking earlier and you know, what do you do with this stuff You know, we're, yeah we're, you know the park in the Tetons itself isn't the right place to have that curated because sure. that's not what they do so he's you know not sure other than the Alpine Club where it'll, it should or will end up but these are you know copious handwritten letters. I have, part of this stuff that I found the other day was, you know, letters from Brad Washburn and H. Adams Carter to me about stuff in Alaska, you know. And they were typewritten, of course, in those days, but they always signed them in longhand. Sure. Right? Because that was how you did that. But the amount of letters and notes, apparently, that Lee Ortenberger had about history was, you know, extraordinary because he was a mathematician, he was meticulous, smart, and uh, what do you do with that stuff? you know? And yeah. a lot of people would say, you know, I don't care what, you know, Frithof Frixel did in 1932 on some little obscure pinnacle, you know. Yeah. But it's at least documented. It's there as a part of history. So I think climbers aren't necessarily for myself, the best custodians of history. Um, and so it's important, I think, to address that. I think part of the desire to,
1: you know, preserve these events, relationships, personalities, you know, at, at one point I would have argued, you know, my be, having been a younger man at one point with some different ideas, I would have said, you know, like, yeah, I, it's important to preserve this stuff so that people don't think, you know, that they're better than they are. You know, it was more of a... <laughs> it sounds like you when you were young. <laughs> See? Exactly. <laughs> and now, I realize like, and I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, preserving something from my era or, you know, it's not specific to the era. It's just that, look, these are... These human experiences were had at the, you know, the margins of the world, in a sense. And human knowledge was brought back from those margins, those edges. And people can learn and benefit and grow from that. And maybe, as you said, you know, if you'd had mentors or you had formal instruction, you could have accelerated your progression. That's one aspect. Of it, but to look back, like I was trying to, um, I, I was trying to, re- you know, find something about something that I knew peripherally about that I had read about when I was a lot younger. But I wanted to include it in this fiction piece that I was, that, you know, may or may not being written. Um, like, okay, fucking who was it? it? Was Wojtek, I think it was John Porter and McIntyre yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm, and I'm trying uh, Bandaka in Afghanistan like okay. last yeah. last yeah. last Westerners into Afghanistan yeah. before the yeah. fucking Russians came you Real. know yeah. and <clears throat> and I was trying to figure like okay how do you like I don't have all my old issues of Mountain anymore I gave them all to John Free and that my collection was partial until Todd Bibler you know gave me his because he was not He's like, I'm not going to fucking move these again, yet again. Right. So they, you know, they ended up with this pretty good collection. Anyway, John Free so I can't go reference that. And I'm like, okay, co e Fuck, I think I don't know how to spell it. So I found, you know, the Wikipedia entry for it. And then happily Bernadette wrote a book.
2: Right. You know, and I could. Well, doesn't John talk about it in his, you know. Book about McIntyre. It, it could be also this um, new book you know that he wrote when I was in the writers' workshop with him. Oh no shit! Yeah, I'll, I'll look it's, for that. It's, it's a, a, it, a biographer. McIntyre. I f-
1: found enough information to you know to include that in the as a launching point for something else. But but again, it's um, so that's something was what seventy eight maybe mm-hmm. uh, when they went there and. You know, I mean, never the the best name of a mountain feature ever—the cyclotron, because the the, the, the the you know the ability to mathematically predict the frequency of rockfall in this one fucking three or four pitch section of the route. You're just like, oh, this is amazing. Things like that are just—they're gone. Otherwise, right. And so that you know got me thinking a little bit about the you know the central something. The Institute for Preservation of Frivolous Shit you know or whatever it's going to be <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's a perfect name <laughs> <laughs> so it, it got me thinking and, and you know I've, I've uh, you know over the years I've scanned and digitized a number of things mostly you know as far as like just my own personal part in it like yeah digitize some some of the scans are good some of them I would like to you know redo uh, you know nobody's actually manufacturing a high quality slide scanner these days there you know you have mm-hmm. to go back and try and find an old nikon cool scan on ebay and then have a computer that will connect to it that, that, that a scuzzy connection could actually happen with you know there there, there are some limitations with this mm-hmm. um some of the old uh, Hasselblad made a made a really good scanner um those are around there's a shop in salt lake there are two shops in salt lake that have them you know, but it's like, depending on the quality of the digitization you want, it's not inexpensive.
2: No. I've only done a thousand of my slides in order to be able to join the 20th century now that it was over. <laughs> and be able to do digital light shows. Otherwise, I was rejected from, you know, because no one had a Kodak carousel anymore, you know. Yeah. I'm, kind of, I'm making a joke, but actually, it's not totally it's, untrue. It's, it's not untrue. Yeah. yeah. Right. And... uh the rest of the thousands of slides are sitting in the garage, as, yeah. as we speak. And you know, I've got file
1: cabinets, same kind of thing, and and I, and then it's just so daunting. Yeah. But I, I, I do think it's 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 important to do and coalesce, and I, I mean, I'm really glad about the to hear about this interview series um That the Alpine Club is doing because I mean I mentioned I think in the in the podcast with Pat this idea I mean it came from Marco actually he wanted to go around and do a tour to visit climbers but he was interested in talking with them but he was also really interested in the books that were on their bookshelves and mm-hmm. you, you mm-hmm. know all of the. The, the, the things that make that climber a human being, you know, what does this person's environment look like? What is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to sort of document that. And it wasn't necessarily for, um, it, you know, if you feel that he knew in the podcast with Pat Callis, I think I mentioned something about like, yeah, it would be a kind of a cool idea to go around and interview these guys that are, you know, about to not be here anymore. Yeah. And I don't feel a ton of motivation for it. But it did come into my head. Yeah, to, well,
2: to, to give credit to both Hornbein and McCarthy, this was their own brainchild, and they actually, you know, funded it personally for quite some time because they understood the value of it. Because they're not, you know, youngsters either. Yeah. Um, you know, Max eighty nine, and Tom will be ninety two in a month or so. But uh, they've done. Some really good things, I think, and I don't know what, you know, the four that were done at our house in Tucson were, um, you know... I'm guessing you and George. Actually, George was supposed to be there two years ago, and they ended up doing it at his house because of COVID, Mm. Um, but it was myself and Graham Thompson from Missoula, who winters in Arizona, John Rupley, who... Maybe a name you don't know. But, I do not. Yeah. But he moved to Tucson in nineteen sixty six and basically established climbing on Mount Lemmon. Oh. Okay. But yeah. he but he also climbed with little known people for decades, named Fritz Wiesner and Fred Becky. And did those, new, those those little known people, you know, yes. And did new roots in the bugaboos with McCarthy, you know? So he's not a household name, but he was a player and yeah. great guy, super smart chemist, you know, was nominated for a Nobel science prize. You know, he's like no dummy, just an over, another overachiever. Right. <laughs> and his wife, and whose name is Isla, they live in Tucson and they've become friends of ours through gray and they're fabulous, you know. So John was the fourth. Third and then the fourth was Scott Ayers, who has done a f- lot of root development. And no, no small amount of climbing yeah. in Arizona. Yeah. Um, but George was supposed to be part of it originally, and it just didn't work out logistically. And yeah. we had to postpone things for two years because of COVID. And then Jim ended up being able to go to George's house, and so the two shorts that they're doing right now, Jim Aikman's working on your mind and George's. Cause okay they think for some reason that we had some value (laughs) to the whole thing (laughs) and no one you know in my mind has done more for American climbing than George Uh, yeah (laughs) and so it's been fun to go climbing with him and have fun with him he was you know super helpful in my situation in the Sierras last year when I got hurt was the only person that saw me take the slide for life and had he not seen me I could have laid there for a lot longer put it that way and then when i was in the hospital he was there for five days trying to be my advocate in this somewhat messed up situation because the hospital was not uncharacteristically understaffed and overworked and Rife with COVID at the time. Mm, Yeah. So it it didn't. So, how many times have you had the vid?
1: Zero. Zero.
2: I just go for exotic fucking diseases. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Okay. Pakistan. I I understand. (laughs) I I
1: see you. You just go for the VIP. (laughs) You just go for the shit (laughs)
2: that's supposed to kill you for sure. Oh, man. No, I've, you know, knock on wood. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but George and those kind of people I think are documented well in this legacy series and you know again you know Mac especially got to people like Leighton Corer and I can't remember who else you know people that weren't going to be around forever but you said there's 70 there's 71 interviews that have been done done. that's pretty yeah. Good. After Tucson in March, which was the four I mentioned, then the, he went to the Gunks and actually to New Paltz and got a lot of the old Bulgarians, Dick Williams, you know, Holy Goldstone, shit. those kind of people, Yeah. and Clooney, Russ Clooney. Um, I think they did 11 interviews there over a period of a week or two. So, and that was obviously sort of close to Max Hart, since that's where he oh, you know, yeah. lived and started climbing. Yeah. He started climbing with John Rupley, actually, at Princeton. And their mentor was Hans Kress. So,
1: So there are, you know, connections also that, like, that are part of, that I think are part of the historical... Landscape, mm-hmm. Let's say like that of, of who influenced, who climbed with, who, you know, in a moment of weakness shared an idea that became a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. the, the climate community has an extraordinarily rich history mm-hmm. that touches into a lot of different, you know, g- geography, but also just the different aspects of life that I think. And you mentioned like a lot of the, the the, OG climbers and explorers, adventurers, whatever. Like, yeah, they're all really intelligent people and they're highly educated and they have other actual careers that...
2: No, I think it, that's a really interesting point about climbing because I've always saw that as being really different than the athletic world that I came from in the past.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, uh, just say that, and even if I look at like temporally, like right now, I see more one-dimensional climbers than people who have you know these things that go on out, out, you know, outside.
2: But maybe that's maybe I'm a bit myopic about it. Well, I think it's hard to say. I think there's still a there's still a significant amount of that that goes on. I can't say for sure, you know, that I know everybody in their 20s that's, you know, yeah. working on their PhD that can climb 514, but, you know. But there's probably one or two or, two or three or more 12. than one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I, th- I think it's always been an observation I have shared with what you just said that there's been this really interesting attraction and connection with academic, smart people mm-hmm. who also saw the attraction to climbing from all aspects not just physically but mentally and emotionally you know because you know i'm not the first person to say this but all climbing really is is just problem solving and scientists and well-educated people you know mathematicians chemists like pat callus yeah. that's what they do. They solve problems, you know. So, I can see the obvious connection. You know, George. On down the list, you know, it's it's really I think significant the amount of academic people that have also been contributors to climbing and also you know lifelong climbers. Yeah. You know, I mean Lou Reichardt. You know. Not everybody just is one dimensional in their,
1: oh yeah, yeah, their
2: lives in anything. But I think climbing has had that connection. I mean, McCarthy was a trial lawyer in New York, you know, and Ruppley's a chemist, and on down the list, you know. Gray Thompson was, you know, went to Dartmouth and was the head of the geology department at the University of Montana for thirty years, you know. So. Yeah, it's it's uh, I think one of the intriguing aspects of what attracts people to climbing, you know I'm not one of those academics you know, i Only reason I graduated from high school was to stay eligible to play football and uh, That was the end of my academic career, but uh, I figured out other things, but yeah, you know, I'm not like those guys is all I'm saying
1: Which means which is also an I think a really fascinating um, aspect of climbing is that you don't that it's available to a, all sort of different temperaments in a way, and I I'm same. I graduated from high school, end of story, and as far as education goes, but and I had I have this idea about it because you know when you say problem solving, and problems can be solved in different ways, and I would look at a lot of climbers when i was trying to learn about climbing and i I came up with two different categories of people who you know are fairly successful at climbing Uh, i might have to add a you know some others if i was really going to develop the theory but the theory was that there are engineers and there are artists and both can solve problems Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they solve the problems in uniquely different ways that's
2: a good observation
1: i think that's true and uh
2: there's no one way to do it. Oh, no.
1: Right. Exactly. I mean, even talking like just the other night, you know, Becky has this project uh, locally that she's been working on. And it's just, it's been done by nine-year-olds. Well, no, maybe he was 10, something. I think that was exactly <laughs> her exact quote. But it's been done by children. It's been done by women. It's been done by men, this thing. But because it's a very gymnastic and technical sequence of things, um you know if if your morphology matches this naturally occurring challenge let's say
0: mm-hmm.
1: then you're gonna then you're gonna be able to do it in one way but it's also not the only way she says I there's a thing there's something that I have to do that someone
2: who's two inches taller
1: than me would not have to do
2: sure well look at Lynn and, on the changing corners on oh, the nose right yeah exactly it's case in point
1: Yep. yep. and that's the concept of, you know, solving problems in different ways. And I'll say writ small because it's you know, it's a small piece of rock, it's a series of, I don't know, thirty moves, whatever. Um, but then you, you know, arrive at different larger objectives and how do you how do you look at the thing and
2: Well that's I think to me, one of them more interesting and intriguing aspects of climbing because you know it's not paint by the numbers you know? and so depending on your style your physiology your mental acuity your flexibility of which i have none uh, you have to do things differently you know but it allows you to still figure out a way to do it yeah which is i think really cool you know it's not again a rigid structured this is the only way kind of thing And again because what I said earlier that has always appealed to me because I I liked the idea of anarchy and a lack of regulation you know <laughs> oh
1: yeah so obviously because the resource is finite let's just say there does need to be some regulation
2: well I think you can go to any you know number of crags and you know see that or even you know the walls in Yosemite or whatever no it's it's a it's not a new problem but it's a newer problem than people thought about it when I was first starting to climb you know even at least understood you know the problem with you know pins versus clean climbing yeah um but it's a big bigger issue i think than a lot of people including myself have acknowledged until recently because the the explosion of popularity of climbing yeah you know has really been a it's not yesterday but it's been recent with respect to the amount of time I've been climbing, and I was just in Europe, and you lived in Chamonix. I had never climbed in Chamonix until last month, and I'm like, holy shit, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, the amount of climbing, but also the amount of climbers, and that was there after the busy season, but I I think the climbing community in the world, you know, of climbing is trying to come to grips with that, whether it's, you know, POW and the whole thing with respect to climate change, or, yeah. or, you know, the work the Access Fund has been doing for years. For years, decades. Yeah, you know, and yeah. all these things about just people becoming more, taking more ownership about their local area through Colombian coalitions like we have here in Bozen and. Yeah, you know, I mean, the places I've climbed here for, you know, close to 50 years, you know, have seen a lot of impact. But it's nothing like, you ever climbed at Finale and, you know Oh, yeah. I just went for the gelato. But yeah. Well, that's because you're smarter than I am. But <laughs> there was gelato involved. But, but anything under 6C was glass. Oh, yeah. Just glass. G- absolute glass. Yeah. yeah. Might as well have been climbing on an obsidian, you know. That's a problem that I don't know what the solution is, but it's you know. But there are also,
1: I mean, there's decades of limestone potential in Europe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. The reason Finale is that polished, or La Turbie, you know, above Monaco, is that mm-hmm. polished, is because they're in the cool fucking places. Yeah. Well. You know, that, are, that were accessible, that are above the water, that are, mm. you know, in these places that you want to go. So, of course, those are the ones that will be discovered first and then overused first. I, I, I do think that this, the you know, part of the the preservation and the historical aspect of communicating about climbing and the history of climbing and the things that have, you know... I don't know if there's a, there, there is another sport or activity with the same kind of, oh shit, we're about to ruin it with pitons and we need to do something different. And it's going to be a a technical regression. It will, you know, at the time it will appear so, Mm -hmm. but we'll get to do it longer. Because these things will be around for a They will not be. We will not be permanently changing these things, and and that is, I think it's unique to climbing. I might just be, you know, talking out of my ass. But um, part of the idea of this, of the preservation, the communication, you know, the, the guardianship or the stewardship of of history and that kind of thing, I think it's, uh, um, it has important bearing
2: on the future. I think that's well said. I think, I don't know what the solution is either, to be <laughs> honest with you. Um, but I do think that uh, we've reached, you know, already a crescendo point in terms of impact. And, you know, some people's solution is, well, just don't go to those places, right? That doesn't really solve the problem. It solves it for them in terms of their their own, you know, experience, if you will. Yeah. Or getting away from crowds. But, uh, you know, we have this place near Moab and, you know, things like Wingate Cracks at Indian Creek, are, they're not a totally a finite resource because there's actually <laughs> still some rock that if you're willing to, you know, put the effort in, you can go find things that haven't been climbed. Yeah. But in terms of fragility, in terms of, you know, visible impact, you know, White chalk on red wingate, and you know, bolts and chains, and you know, yeah. that kind of thing. It's you know, it's some of stuff is more visible, some stuff is more physically obvious in terms of damage. But I don't, you know, I wish I n- knew a better answer to what the end game is going to be here, you know, yeah. 30, 40, 50 years from now, because I don't see climbing, you know. All, this, all of a sudden being, you know, dissed has something to do. Yeah. So I think all you can do is what you can do, you know, in terms of taking care of your own backyard and try to have that message go out beyond...
1: backyard beyond the backyard and then when you go to place other places you know to learn the local ethic and respect the local ethic i've been you know pretty shocked looking at uh I don't even know how to describe it, but but the, the impact on the uh, eight thousand meter peaks, human oh, behavior on the I eight thousand meter peaks. I was just about
2: peaks. to talk about that too. And unbelievable!
1: To, it's um it's it's remarkable. I mean, one of the essays I read at my presentation the other night was about how supplemental oxygen is doping and should be considered as such. Um, <laughs> because you know, yeah, it's a performance enhancing drug, and if you don't want to have the experience, and then, and but. And, and part of the reason that I read that the other night is because I, I saw an uh, an article on Explorer's Web, um, mm. <laughs> the other day about how a, one of the guide services in Kazakhstan is um, offering you know oxygen supported ascents of Cantangri, which is seven thousand meters, mm. and then another company was talking about another Austrian company that I can't remember the name of said something about they were doing it on Aconcagua for clients who didn't have enough time. You know, they, could, they couldn't, they, they yeah. wanted to, you know, say they did the thing or they wanted to do the thing in under whatever circumstances, but they only had, you know, I no, I can only be on the glacier for five days, not long enough to acclimatize, whatever. And they're like, we can help you get to the top of this thing You know under these
2: circumstances versions of that going on on even Everest much less the other
1: 8,000 meter peaks oh yeah but these are 7,000 like it's gonna get lower and lower and lower to make it more and more accessible to be able to commodify the experience in a way that is then accessible to short attention span kind of
2: yeah well my reference point going back to my Everest trip that I talked about earlier just from a chronological standpoint. Yeah. When I was on Everest in spring of eighty three, there'd been four total American expeditions ever to Everest. Sixty three, the bicentennial trip, the eighty one trip where Marty Hoey died. Yeah. Yeah. And oh my God. The first attempt on the East Face. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. okay. In prior to 1983, in 1983 there were four American expeditions to Everest just in that year.
1: Was the the medical American medical Everest expedition on the on the south side at that same time? I can't remember. No, what but what was. was
2: on the same side as us at the same time was uh, Dick Bass be, being attempting to get up oh. Everest. Yeah. Before the Seven Summits thing, you know, came to came to, came to be, um, with you know Ridgway and Dave Boshiers. Yeah, I believe I know Ridgway was there. So because Bass didn't get up that time. Yeah. You nope. know, Everest had yet to be guided when I was there. Fuck. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. look what happened within the next you know ten years. And then look what's happened with respect to guiding 8,000-meter peaks, especially the last five years. Yeah. You know, I mean, last summer, 145 people summited K2 in one day. And in the history of climbing K2 prior to that, I'm not sure I'm right about this, but I'd be willing to bet my house that less than 100 people had summited K2. Summit. Yeah. So, what better example can you have about what's been happening on 8,000 meter peaks because of guiding, because of fixed ropes from the bottom of the route to the summit, oxygen at elevations lesser than they used to be, you know, when you turned it on, Mm -hmm. if you were using it, and at least one Sherpa in front of you. And often one right behind you. And all you have to do is clip your jug in to the fixed line and put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. I mean, is that climbing? I know I'm asking a rhetorical question in the sense that I'm not trying to sound like an old guy that, you know, is, but it's, my point is, it's totally different yes. than it used to be. It's accessible to people that have money that have goal orientations, and now the guide companies, you know, are the ones that are providing that. And then you get, you know, look at all these clusterfucks that happen as a result. You know, people are dying, Sherpas are dying, people are falling off. You know, I mean, it's just totally, completely apart from what Himalayan climbing should be has been genies out of the bottle you know we can right. i mean
1: and, and you know in the sense we can we can we can we're not even armchair judging because we have actually been there and we have some experience with it but um i had not really an idea of the extent of the problem um or the extent of this behavior human behavior I have seen it on Everest, and you know, read all the K two stuff, and the you know, my third, you know, my second Himalayan peak is going to be K two in winter, and I train by you know, I put this ladder in my living room, and I walk across with my crampons and all my gear on, or, you know, like the the shit that I saw is just making me like want to get on a a tall building with a rifle or something. But um, <laughs> the, the but then reading recently, you know about. Um, Hilary Nelson's accident, like it, th- that's what drew me to this article about what was going on in Manaslu i right, like right. that's a I mean yeah it's 8,000 meters but what the fuck did you, you guys you know what happened and I can't was it 2015 when the last big ass avalanche came through um, well there was m-
2: one year where 12 people died and there was another year not that long ago where 9 people died on Manaslu in avalanches yeah you know same route
1: I mean, and
2: whatever year it was,
1: and I'd have to, I'd have to look back. But uh, my friend Glenn was on it, trying to ski it, and you know, Avalanche came through the camp, and you know, he he lived, but the guy in the tent with him did not. And uh, that'll change your fucking life. Yeah. But but just this idea of the ex- catastrophic nature of these. Incidents now—it's like it's totally different than it used to be. Like mm-hmm. because just because there's because there are 45 people in Camp Three,
2: you know, there in, were 450 people on Manus.
1: Yeah, fuck. I mean, so then I would go, but I would repeat your question: Is
2: that climbing? And I don't, I you know, it is in the sense that that's what I mean. It's a you know, it's a free world and all free country mm-hmm. and all that, but. I want people to do what they want, right, absolutely, but you know what what is unfortunate, I think, is just the lack of understanding of the value of the experience with a little less artificial support, yeah, and you know it isn't necessarily I think proper to say that you can level the playing field to such a low bar that it's a good thing for everybody because yeah, I think or, there should be some context with it in where people respect the, in this, in this case, the mountain environment they're in understand some of the objective hazards and problems that can arise have some you know, knowledge about what they're doing and where they are versus abdicating that to someone else. And I think
1: it, I think it starts with this fundamental misunderstanding of like, why do you want to climb the mountain? Well, because it would be cool. It's a cool experience. It's, I'd be out in nature. I will be pushed to you know do things that are not within my realm of experience i would have therefore i would have to learn them i would have to become physically fit in order to do this thing i'm gonna to have to learn all of these things um you know about the environment and the, and the, the that i'm operating in and um so all of these things make it cool And then you start fucking taking them away one by one, so that you can do it because you're not willing to learn. You don't have any respect for the environment. You and and Krakauer in like in in the article that he wrote in Outside about our trip to the Eiger, he self-deprecatingly—it's not because the statement is not true. uh, He said, "While Mark wanted to climb the Eiger, I wanted to have climbed the Eiger." It was the first time that I'd seen this distinction
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, between, and, and, and it's not true because, you know, John, is, he's, a clim- I mean, he's a climber. Right. He fucking sold the devil's thumb, you know? He's, right. Right. Like, he's got this experience. He wants to be there, but as a literary artifice, he set up the, the, you know, the con- t- conditions here. Uh, but it, it was the first time I'd seen the distinction you know, between someone who really wanted to actually, like, I want to be up there doing the thing. I, I want to have the experience. I want to go through the process of having this experience, and then there—that's separated from people who want to have done it for whatever reason. And I don't know what that reason, you know, the you know the reason is. In, in my head, the reason is to you know improve social stature of some kind. You know, whatever the motivation is, but they don't want to actually go through the process, you know, to address the naturally occurring challenge in the most natural way possible. Like
2: Well and I don't wanna sound like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth about the guiding on the eight thousand meter peaks when I've spent a lot of time guiding myself. Sure. But it's not been in the context of that type of guiding and climbing. You're not commodifying the experience. And people who have still needed to have a certain amount of, you know, independence and skill and conditioning Yes, I can provide, you know, a certain margin of safety. I can provide, you know, good, hopefully good judgment and good decisions about when to go up and when to turn around and all that kind of thing. But that's not what's going on with these particular more high-profile 8,000-meter peak, yeah, you know, things right now. And it's just, it's too bad because these are beautiful mountains that are getting about impact (laughs) I was going (laughs) to say literally shit upon (laughs) yeah I mean you think Finale Ligura is a problem I mean what about these roots on these 8,000 meter peaks I mean they're just look at the photos from K2 that this one woman I forget what kind I think she was European and you know there's just desiccation you know just shit literally you know everywhere but tents you know Fixed lines and garbage, and you know, I mean, that's that's criminal. That these are not places that that should be occurring, and it's only occurring because of this new mechanism by which 8,000 meter peaks are being guided by people who are willing to pay the money and uh, and clip their Jumar into the fixed line and put the oxygen on.
1: And you mean know, I go through and
2: then like criticize,
1: you know, the people who want to do that and have done that, but I've never talked to one. So, um, it'd be kind of curious to like, hear someone and have a conversation with someone who has done a guided trip to an 8,000 feet peak, or maybe even to Everest and succeeded in it. And, and what, what that experience was about, what benefit, you know, what I'll say benefits, but it's not for profit. It's, you know, what, what did you learn? What did you, you know, what? How do you integrate what happened there into the rest of your life in a way? Yeah. It would well, be
2: fascinating. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people that have guided these thousand-meter pigs. I mean, I know a lot of these. Yeah, I mean, I know a bunch of well, the, the and... people who've done the guiding, but yeah. I've never talked to any yeah. clients this whole time. Yeah. and I've talked to a few of them. Okay. And I've had people that, you know, I've done stuff with for a long time that thought about trying to do that kind of thing. hmm uh, but didn't but you know you, you bring up a good point I haven't actually you know talked to one of the people that have been on these 8,000 meter peaks the last two or three years where it has just ballooned yeah. you know into this thing so you, I mean you make a good point I really you know I can I can conjecturize what I think their motivation yeah. is but I can't yeah. speak from it first hand so I won't um I don't think it's going to end well, you know, with respect to the impact and then what happens with the different countries involved, you know, Pakistan, Nepal, China a little bit because of Shishma, Mm -hmm. Um, and Joy There's just going to be more costs, more regulation, and make it even more exclusive. Financially, so right. to speak, and you start selecting for, you know, the, the people who have
1: the financial wherewithal. Not well, it's, the, it's already that way. I mean, you know, oh no, right. no, for sure. On the on right. the guiding aspect, for for sure, yeah,
2: right? But you know, who are the people that we would have known when we were climbing, you know, in our thirties and forties, that would now choose to go and try to do an alpine style route? on these higher 8000 meter peaks. Almost no one goes to even do that anymore. Yeah. And part of the reason is they want to go other places for sure. Doing like Marco, you know, figured out a long time ago that between 6 and 7000 meters you can is the sweet spot if you mm-hmm. want to do hard shit. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: You know, with the- with little regulation oversight and exposure to, you know, other People who, right? Uh,
0: yeah,
2: but you know, you mentioned you know the White Limbo climb on Everest. You know, uh, who who has done that? No shit. In the last thirty years. And that was what 82? 80, It was 80? after I was there. Okay,
1: yeah. So, or even you know, if we like, like the reference point for me on Everest is Erhard and Jean. Yeah. You know, and that's. 86 yeah like right what in the fuck? right who, who's done better you know who's who has like if we're t- no one's t-
2: moved the needle much past
1: that right yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and when, that's what I meant by better I'm just like yeah. like as far as human potential goes and that kind of thing you're like yeah. man yeah. were they too far ahead of their time or was it just or you know were was were people unable to understand? And if you can't understand that you can't be lifted up by that human achievement, right? Like when you see human beings doing cool shit, somebody climbs, you know, the first dude that climbed 512, 513, whatever, dragged a hundred others up behind, proving that it was possible. And I think in a lot of these like more difficult and complicated challenges within climbing, The pool to draw from is smaller in the first place and and only gets smaller the more difficult, higher, inaccessible these things become. But we still, like, and this is, I think, part of the sort of the preservation or the conservation and then the communication of these historical events are critical to advancing, in air quotes, human potential. Because if you don't know that it got done, then you approach it in, you know, you, you you see something like that. You might even not even be able to imagine it. And if you could, you would you would approach it in a different way. If it had been done by some freaks out on the literal edge of human possibility, there's a difference between that and then it never having been done. So you have to know
2: if you want to progress. Well, I think one thing that has happened because of the cost of eight thousand meter peaks—you know, just the peak fees alone—preclude a small two to four man, yeah. person trip. You know,
1: yeah, I kind of wonder what these it kind of costs. Like
2: I'd be curious to
1: see what you know, Corey and Topo had to come up with when they tried to go as a two man team two, three years ago, whenever it was,
2: yeah. But I'm sure they were dovetailing onto somebody else that helped mitigate some of the costs, you know. But I don't know the specifics, but you bring up, you know, an excellent example of someone that tried to figure it out. But what I was leading up to was the people that were doing these things on... 8,000-meter peaks in the 70s and 80s that we looked at and still kind I think, can look at historically as leading-edge yeah. examples of the human experience within climbing. Um, Lucas and Bohigas on the south face of Annapurna, you know, two dudes walked up to the face, climbed it, came yeah, down. Right. What, did, what was the... But those guys and everybody else that we're thinking about, whether it was, you know, Triola and Big or whoever... Mm-hmm look at the body of knowledge and experience that they had as a foundation to get to the point where they could do that. Yeah. And those people now are out there but they're choosing to do things on other peaks under 8,000 meters off the beaten track a little bit more and are trying some audacious routes and some of them are getting up and some of them are, you know, making strong attempts. But there's almost none of it that I'm aware of. And I try to be fairly up on what's going on because of, you know, the cutting edge grant and blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, been vacated from the experience that we, you know, saw in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that was... Still, even though people were getting up, you know, the regular routes using oxygen on the two or three highest peaks and nothing else. Uh, yeah. But doing Alpine style, you know, I mean, look at the west face of G4. I mean, it's not an 8,000-meter peak by a rope length, it turns out. Yeah. Right? So those, I mean, there's not been a whole lot in the progression of hard Himalayan alpine-style climbing on that kind of elevation of Himalayan peaks since, you know, the 90s. So most go- of it was in the 70s and a- 80s. In 80s, yeah. yeah.
1: So if it goes over 8,000 meters right now, it's financially inaccessible to smaller, more, and smaller, more competent, in air quotes, teams to, to go and try and, and do I think it's a-
2: primarily a financial thing. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think you're right. And, and this Marco a- told me that about his own you know, strategies with respect to what he'd been doing, you know, in other parts of the Himalaya as a result of, you know, wanting to do something that was cool and leading-edge and also that wasn't, you know, uh, gonna break the bank. You know? Didn't break the bank and didn't put you in relationship with people that you don't really want. Yeah, yeah. where you have to yeah. compromise by doing some, yeah. you know, circus hoop-jumping thing, you know. so. It will be interesting to see if that changes. Yeah. But at this point, given the crescendos during COVID of what's happened in this whole um, eight thousand meter peak thing, is you know, it's sort of staggering.
1: I I, I kind of wonder what the gear shops in Kathmandu look like right now.
2: Well, they probably don't look like they did. Thirty years ago, where they had North Face knockoffs with the logo sewn upside down,
1: I wasn't <laughs> totally referring to that, but yes, that is that's some good comedy. But I was just thinking of like yeah. you know the guys who sold out their shit, um, you know, after they they, they, oh, they did right. a thing, yeah. and then guys could come. Let's just say specifically Eastern European climbers would yeah. come with, yeah. uh, you know, all their carry-on luggage is fucking ice screws titanium or right. wearing their, their plastic boots or, yeah. Yeah. or or coming with fucking nothing and then being able to go to those shops and just like trade their goods yeah. for everything that they would need and I think at some point uh, Jeff had actually gone to Denali um, to flow with you know based on the same idea like you show what say say the idea is you show up in Nepal with fucking nothing but you know you got a uh, I don't know, 20 kilos of fucking titanium ice screws that no one's ever seen because you made them in the submarine factory where you work back in Poland. Mm-hmm. You trade those <laughs> ice screws for your boots, for your down suit, for tents, for everything that you would ever need to go on a Himalayan expedition. And you fucking go. And so Jeff had this idea, and I don't know if they actually did it or it was just an you know drunken idea we talked about, but it was like you fly into Cailton-the-Bays, with a case of whiskey, and ten gallons of ice cream, <laughs> and you could get every fucking thing you needed. To right. climb, you know, you, you could fly fly in with that and your street clothes, yeah. and, and you could get every fucking thing you needed to climb
2: out. And pizza, and yeah, that, that too.
1: Yeah. Different era when it was you know all that was less accessible, but.
2: Well, um, I never heard him talk about that, but, <laughs> but, it, you know. And I haven't been at Holding base for a number of years now myself, but I hadn't thought about all the gear that people must be leaving in Kathmandu on the way out. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe maybe they are. Maybe they're not. What is more important to me is just the. I think the sort of interesting push-pull socio-economically between, you know, the Sherpas and the guides, yeah. and the clients, that are you know now 98 or 9 percent of who's on these higher elevation peaks yeah i mean there was two guys from chamonix that were in trying to climb the west face of manislu yes at the same, yeah, time, at right? the same time you probably yeah. know those guys yeah but uh you know the weather was shit and they didn't i'm sure they didn't do anything i haven't heard that yeah. they did I, yeah I haven't heard but either, you but... know for every one example like that there's a thousand where it's just the regular it's consumption route with you know the other style of climbing but i think regulation in these different countries through the ministries of tourism and whatever you know governmental agencies is going to be an issue with respect to just access in general it might more likely than not become even more exclusive Yeah, to get there in terms of the cost so
1: It'll be interesting,
2: you know, because if, if they could look at
1: if, you know, Yvonne's thesis about clean climbing could possibly be presented in a meaningful way. Well, that's
2: a really good thought. That's a really good thought. You know, you should, to, you should talk more about that. I hadn't thought of it in that context, but, you know, that's a really good. I th- I think the parallel is there. Yeah, it's a really good segue. Can we take a
1: break? Yeah, we're no, I think actually we've. We should probably call it... We're three hours. Yeah. So we're going to call this the end of part one. Okay. Deal. We, we don't know how many parts will <laughs> will continue. But I think um,
2: this, this has been fucking wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been fun for me. And I think we touched on a few things that matter and are relevant and added a little bit of humor and some storytelling besides. But, yeah. uh, you know... Hopefully your editing will be
1: helpful. I, I edit mouth pops and, <laughs> you know, long pauses. That's pretty much all I got. All right. Unless something, I mean, you, you know, know. drop in my cell phone. Be, be, yeah. yeah. I mean, that might, you know, whatever. I'm we'll get it out. But, all right. Well, thank um, you. Jack, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Mark. And we'll talk about uh, next time
2: we get together. Yeah. We'll talk about, you know, what now, what next. Yeah. Well, I still want to talk about some of the things that have already happened that we didn't talk about also. Perfect. Yeah. So, thank you. Thank you. All right. Good night.